American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances will keep us, America, safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett is live on the ground in Tel Aviv, Israel. Sarah Seidner live for us in the West Bank. And that was President Biden back from the war zone calling on Americans to support wartime aid for Israel and for Ukraine. And today he will ask Congress to pass an aid package. In his primetime Oval Office address, Biden called it vital for our national security. Hamas and Putin represent different threats but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. History has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going and the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. There is, of course, one problem. Congress is paralyzed without a House speaker and right now can't actually pass anything. That all comes at a pivotal moment when Israel's leaders are signaling a ground invasion of Gaza could be imminent. Early this morning, CNN's Nick Robertson witnessed increased activity along the border, including flares and heavy machine gun fire. Israel's defense minister visited troops massing near the Gaza border and told them, quote, you see Gaza now from a distance. You will see you'll soon see it from inside. The command will come. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was also near the border rallying troops and asking them if they were ready to deliver a, quote, hard blow. Israeli officials tell CNN politicians have given the military the, quote, green light to enter Gaza. Let's start with Aaron Burnett, live for us in Tel Aviv. Aaron, you've been speaking to the IDF. What is the latest? Right. And, you know, we've been speaking <clears throat> to sources there and, of course, as spokespeople publicly. And... They consider it ready, uh, sources are saying. And, of course, they, they don't know either, right? But uh, some sources at the IDF are saying, OK, 48 hours. Doesn't mean it's going to be that. Of course, we don't know when that order will come. Uh, we do know, of course, that the reporting is, uh, our reporting is, is that the Army has been given the green light uh, when they are ready. The very latest from the IDF spokesperson that we have, though, is, is this. And let me play you, Colonel Jonathan Conriquez, speaking with me just a few hours ago in these early hours of the morning. Here he is. The reserves are ready, equipped, uh, mission-oriented, and um, standing by uh, for the next stage of our operations. But at this time, of course, we will not advertise when, where, and how we will uh, uh, advance or do and, or enhance our military activities. All of this is, of course, dependent in, in part on what happens on that southern Rafa border that we've all talked so much about. Uh, sources close to Netanyahu had said they thought that that would be open today for aid to come in. Then sources uh, were telling Jake Tapper, MJ Lee and team that that would not happen today. So there are still a lot of questions about that and whether that would impact uh, Israel's decision on going in. Sources, again, Israeli government say, no, it won't have any impact, uh, but, but we'll see if that's really the case. But nonetheless, really on the edge and, and ready and certainly getting those rallying visits from Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday along those front lines where 350,000 troops are amassed as I speak. And on this Friday, this, of course, is a Friday. This is a day of prayer in the Muslim community, and there are pro-Palestinian protests expected uh, after mosque in Egypt, Jordan, Tunisia, and Pakistan, other places uh, in the broader Middle East region today as demonstrators around the world have been marching, feeling a grief, a fear, 
solidarity for the Palestinians who remain trapped in Gaza. And there are concerns about a possible flare-up of violence when you have this many uh, people in the streets. The State Department is issuing an alert advising all Americans anywhere overseas to exercise increased caution. Our Sarah Seidner is live in Ramallah in the West Bank with more. And Sarah, what are you seeing so far uh, today? I know it's been relatively quiet, uh, but obviously a lot of this depends on, on when people are in mosque and when they are gathering. What do you understand is happening there? It is quiet. You can hear um, you can hear the Muslim singing from the mosque, waiting for uh, the afternoon prayer, which will begin about noon. But there has been a call by Hamas's political leadership that people come out into the streets and protest uh, in solidarity with the Palestinian people in Gaza who have now uh, been killed in the thousands. We're talking some 3,000 people and some more than 10,000 people injured there, uh, according uh, to the uh, Palestinians there in Gaza. Uh, we are also here at an area where there have already been clashes. In the West Bank, there have been clashes since the day uh, this started. Two people were shot and killed here just yesterday uh, during clashes between Palestinians who were throwing stones and the Israeli military uh, who was responding and, and firing back. Uh, there have been upwards of 70 plus people in the West Bank who have been killed uh, in clashes and in fighting with the Israeli military and including um, settlers as well who uh, have been on the attack uh, since all of this happened. Uh, the real concern here obviously is how big these protests get and what the response is going to be from the Israeli military as the Israeli military has said it is in war, uh, and they officially declared that uh, back after the attack from Hamas on Saturday. Uh, here in the West Bank, there are always some sort of clashes. Palestinians at this point in time uh, cannot leave uh, the, the West Bank uh, because it has been closed off uh, by the Israelis for the most part so that people can't easily get in and out. Uh, and certainly, tensions are extremely high. There are plenty of Palestinians here who have family that live in Gaza, who are living with these dire consequences um, in Gaza, who don't have water, who don't have food, who don't have fuel. And they are hoping beyond hope that there will be some humanitarian uh, aid that comes in. But mostly they are concerned about the airstrikes that continue to go on and on. And Hamas calling for the entire Arab world and the world at large to come out and protest uh, against what they say. Uh, is the Israeli occupation of Gaza, um, and they have been very clear about what they want people to do. We should start seeing some activity after the prayers, after the noon prayers uh, here in Ramallah. Aaron. All right, thank you very much, Sarah. And of course, we're going to be checking back in with you. Uh, as Sarah says, you know, it is, is usually after uh, mosque and prayers uh, end uh, that that these protests often begin. President Biden, in his primetime speech, casting the moment in history as what he calls an inflection point and a battle for the world's democracies. Well, we have some new polling about how Americans really feel about this, how they feel about President Biden's handling of the wars in Israel and Ukraine. And the defense minister here in Israel telling troops they will soon see Gaza from the inside. What does that really look like? Is that, is that all those troops on the border? Is that just some of them? What would it really look like? We'll be back. President Biden alerting the nation that providing aid to the war efforts in Ukraine and Israel is, in his words, quote, vital 
for America's national security. In an impassioned address from the Oval Office last night, the president explained the funding is imperative for the future of American leadership and for democracies to be sustained worldwide. And he also warned that U.S. Adver adversaries and competitors are watching. Arlette Science has more for us this morning from the White House. Good morning. Good morning, Poppy. President Biden used the Oval Office to paint a stark picture of what's at stake in these wars in Israel and Ukraine. The president drew a direct line between the two very different conflicts, warning that they pose a threat not just to U.S. national security, but also democracy at large. Now, President Biden faces the difficult task of convincing skeptical Americans to get on board. President Biden appealing directly to the American people, making the case for aid to allies facing existential threats. And making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. In a rare Oval Office address, Biden declaring the U.S. must remain a, quote, beacon to the world. American alliances will keep us, America, safe. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it and warning what happens when dictators don't pay a price for their actions. They cause more chaos and death and more destruction. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. Biden cast this moment as an inflection point, arguing that his request for north of $100 billion in aid for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and the U.S. southern border is necessary. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. The White House believes it has bipartisan support in Congress for the aid package, but securing the funding will likely be a challenge. Recent CNN polling shows Americans are unsure of what U.S. involvement in Israel should look like, and the appetite for sending aid to Ukraine is waning. Congress failed to pass the last White House request for aid made in August. All this while the House sits paralyzed, unable to pass any legislation at all until they elect a speaker. We can't let petty, partisan, angry politics get in the way of our responsibilities as a great nation. Biden reaffirming the United States' commitment to Israel's security, but urged its government to reflect on the lessons learned after 9-11. While we sought and got justice, we made mistakes. So I caution the government of Israel not to be blinded by rage. Biden also acknowledging the high tensions the October 7th terror attack has sparked here at home. After his speech, he spoke to the father of six-year-old Wadea Al-Fayyum, who was fatally stabbed because he was Muslim. Let us not forget who we are. We reject all forms, all forms of hate, whether against Muslim, Jews, or anyone. That's what great nations do. And we are a great nation. Now, as the president made this pitch to Americans, we're also getting a, a look at how Americans view the president's handling of this situation in Israel. According to a new CBS YouGov poll, 44 percent of Americans approve, while the majority of Americans disapprove of his handling of this conflict in Israel. That's similar to the marks the president is getting in his approach to Ukraine. And but it is slightly higher than his overall approval rating, which sat about at about 40 percent in that uh, poll. But it's clear, Phil, that the coming weeks and months ahead will be critical in determining whether President Biden's strategy is the right one as he's trying to prevent this conflict in Israel from widening into a deeper crisis.
Yeah, Arlette, that's such a critical point. It also underscores both the origin and rationale for the speech last night and the details of the emergency aid package that uh, the White House will be sending up to Capitol Hill in just a matter of hours. And the details here matter because they get at what Arlette was laying out, not just the policy, but also the politics and trying to figure out a path forward in a building that doesn't currently have an operating House of Representatives. So what's in the package? You heard the big kind of rhetorical soaring speech that the president had last night. The details here matter, and here's why. Not only does it include $60 billion for Ukraine, which roughly aligns with an annual appropriation to continue the U.S. aid towards Ukraine for a long period of time, not to have month-to-month re-ups that have caused so much political division, given House Republican opposition to much of that aid. When it comes to Israel, the president and his team having very in-depth discussions, I'm told, about what the Israelis needed while the president was over there, landing around $14 billion. But there's also other elements as well. Humanitarian aid, which has been critical, both Ukraine and other places around the world. But look at this, $14 billion for the border, uh, drug trafficking, fentanyl. That's important because Republicans will have to support this plan as well. They point to that as a critical need. The administration says it's critical as well. And also $7 billion for the Indo-Pacific and Taiwan. That is also a bipartisan issue. The administration in this national security package really trying to drive towards something that can get majority support in the House and the Senate. They believe it's there, whether or not the House actually has a speaker. Still at this point, an open question. Why the difference between aid to Israel and Ukraine? This is an important point here because it's not as dramatic as it may look in this emergency package. In fact, the $14 billion is roughly what the Israelis were asking for in terms of needs. And here's in part why. If you look at the scale of U.S. assistance and you want to understand just how close this alliance is, $260 plus billion adjusted for inflation since World War II is more than any other country that the U.S. gives military aid to. Obviously, Israel was created in 1948. The difference is critical. Ukraine, so large in part, because it's not just money going to Ukraine. It's going to help U.S. stocks in rebuilding those. Take a listen. We send Ukrainian equipment sitting in our stockpiles. And when we use the money allocated by Congress, we use it to replenish our own stores, our own stockpiles with new equipment. Equipment that that defends America and is made in America. Significant from the president making that distinction for the American people, uh, especially for those who do not support more aid there. How this works matters. Matters. Uh, So this just in also the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has announced that eligible Israeli citizens and nationals can now travel to the United States for up to 90 days without a visa. This speeds up a previously announced plan, which was set to begin on the 30th of November. Israel joins the visa waiver program that covers citizens in more than 40 countries biometric passports. Well, new overnight, CNN's team on the ground witnessing increased military activity along Israel's border with Gaza, including several flares. What that could mean for the timing of Israel's potential ground incursion. Also, this news overnight, a U.S. Navy destroyer near Yemen intercepted multiple missiles after bases in Iraq and Syria, we have learned, also had to repel drone attacks, the latest on tensions rising across the region. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. 
All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There are new signs this morning that the Israeli Defense Force could move into Gaza at any minute. CNN has seen a buildup of military right along the border and now flares late into the night. This comes as Israeli government officials tell CNN's Nick Robertson that the troops have the, quote, green light to enter Gaza. Those officials also say that Gaza's 50-mile border with Israel will look radically different after any military incursion. They tell CNN that a tough buffer zone will be established, one that would essentially be a no-go zone, and the IDF will be able to go into Gaza and arrest people whenever they want, theoretically, on their terms much like they can now in the West Bank. Joining us now at the Magic Wall, CNN military analyst, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. Sir, good to see you. Uh, I I want to start with the flares, because Nick Robertson was pointing this out. We show video of it right now. Um, And he made clear that that's not the norm necessarily in this moment. What does that tell you? It just tells me that the Israeli forces are are looking for something or they're trying to use a little bit of psychological warfare against the people inside of uh, Gaza. This is not that big of a deal. Uh, It is just to show potentially the commanders that are on the scene where different crossing points are, what they're looking for. It's to orient those who are new to the area. Big question is, will this become a regional conflict? The president talked about that last night. Let's talk about what we have just seen in the region. The fact that two sources told CNN overnight that Navy warships, U.S. Navy warships operating in the Middle East, uh, had to counter multiple projectiles fired uh, on the coast of Yemen yesterday. And then you couple that with what the Pentagon says are drone attack attempts in Iraq and where U.S. officials are in Iraq and and uh, and Syria. Yeah, a couple things that happened yesterday. The the drone attack out uh, off the coast of the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden down here against the USS Kearney drew a lot of attention. Integrated air defense from that ship shot the drones and the missiles down that were coming out of Yemen. That's important, but the range from there to Israel is pretty far, and it's. They don't have a great missile force, let's put it that way. But the other things that were occurring are, would be a normal day in some, in some countries, like the drone attack at Al-Tamf in, in Syria. That is a U.S. military base in that particular reason. It's been there for a while. Other drone attacks, Al-Assad Air Force Base, I've been out there many times uh, in Iraq, uh, Erbil, Baghdad, and in the southern part of Iraq, just tells me that the popular mobilization fronts, the Iranian-backed rebels are actually targeting those kinds of locations just as harassment attacks. There was also two Israeli citizens uh, killed in Egypt, which just shows that there's an, a swell of a ground movement that is a result of some of the things that have been going on there. And, and all of these Arab street does not want Israel to go into Gaza. Let's take a step back to, to what your point has been. Uh, and I think it's very valuable to note that these bases, these U.S. bases are often harassed or mm-hmm. often subject to drone attacks uh, or rocket attacks. All of it happening on the on same day, day, the same day the president gives an Oval Office address uh, as Israel is uh, preparing for what looks like a ground incursion. Different proxies yep. from Iran. Yep. But does that tell you something? Yeah, it's a call for it's a call for harassment. It's a call for attacks. It is a jihad. Uh, they are receiving information from Iran saying 
let's up the ante a little bit and show our displeasure at what's going on in Israel. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Always helpful. Appreciate, Appreciate it. So take a look at this. These are live images right now. This is the Rafah border crossing where critical humanitarian aid is supposed to be getting into Gaza from Egypt. The UN Secretary General is on the Egyptian side where trucks are loaded with aid. They are waiting just to get into Gaza. What we know about when that could happen and why it keeps being delayed, that's ahead. Coming up, we'll speak to a member of Doctors Without Borders who says the main hospital in Gaza is just hours away from losing electricity. Stay with us. Welcome back. I'm Aaron Burnett, live in Tel Aviv, Israel. Moments ago, a large group of people were seen rallying for the opening of the Rafah crossing on the Egypt border. Uh, you can see this. This is right outside that border, a few miles around that crossing. There's craters in front of it. We understand about 20 trucks. Some of those drivers have told us they actually saw the Egyptian moving concrete as if there was an may maybe the possibility of it opening. But subsequently, CNN has learned that the Rafah crossing will not open today, uh, as had been anticipated. But that sense of on the ground uh, and that, that terrain, that desert, gives you some perspective on where we stand right now. Just moments ago, we did hear from the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, who is at the Rafa border crossing on the Egyptian side. So he is there. You've got a UN compound on the other side where, where we know people are better supplied than most places, but still with dwindling, dwindling supplies. Uh, and of course, he's standing where all those trucks loaded with aid are waiting to enter. Behind these walls, we have two million people that is suffering enormously. So these trucks are not just trucks. They are a lifeline. They are the difference between life and death for so many people in Gaza. What we need is to make them move, to make them move to the other side of this wall, to make them move as quickly as possible. So those cement blocks that I referenced, we actually have video of that. CNN has obtained that from some of these truck drivers who are sitting there uh, night upon night and waiting, moving those blocks at the entrance of the crossing. There are those 20 trucks. They are expected to enter once the crossing opens. The United Nations is saying that it needs, though, 100 trucks a day to provide adequate aid to the people inside Gaza. 20 trucks right now, and they need 100 a day. This comes as Gaza's main medical facility is in danger of running out of fuel within hours. No fuel has been coming into Gaza now for days. And of course, to run a generator, you need fuel. All of that is now running out. Doctors Without Borders said yesterday that the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City only had enough fuel to run its generators for 24 more hours. That hospital is one of the few places in Gaza that actually even has electricity for now. And, and on that front, you know, we have been getting dispatches from people inside Gaza uh, daily. And, you know, they, we get these small clips and they cut out because of the phone connections, because they don't have the power. Our journalist Ibrahim Daman escaped northern Gaza in the south with his wife and two sons. He's been filing these dispatches for out front every night. And here's his latest report on the situation in Khan Yunus. الوضع عندنا في خان يونس من ساعة ما نزحنا من الفندق إلى خان يونس وإحنا موجودين في نفس البيت في البداية كان البيت في البداية آمن 
لكن الان من امس واول امس ازدادت الضربات الجويه في منطقه خان يونس والقصف المدفعي الحياه في خان يونس صعبه جدا احنا الميه الحمامات الميه بصعوبه لما بنجيبها بصعوبه جدا فيش ميه في الشو فيش ميه شرب صارت غاره جويه كثير 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 قويه عندنا الدنيا تملت غبره بيضه بيضه صارت المنطقه The world is turning into a white cloud. Something poetic and, and profound about that, that horrible image. Joining us now is Avril Benoit, the U.S. Executive Director for Doctors Without Borders. And Avril, I appreciate speaking with you again. I know that you have a team in this main hospital in Gaza, the Al-Shifa Hospital. Can you give us any update on their situation? Yes, Erin, uh, we are really beside ourselves because we often lose contact with them, uh, as you mentioned, uh, with the lack of electricity, the inability to charge phones, cell signals often uh, being cut out. Uh, very difficult to get real-time information from the team. And uh, what we do know is that our medical coordinator was warning that the fuel was reading, reaching catastrophic lows. And of course, they will ration. They will try to stretch it out as much as possible because you need that fuel to run generators for the life-saving medical equipment, including incubators for neonates, uh, dialysis machines, and just, just general functioning for all the trauma surgeries that they're trying to do. You know, the, the, the dispatches that we've gotten from doctors at hospitals uh, in Gaza, just the, the exhaustion in their voice uh, is just hard to hear. I know that the Al-Shifa hospital that you're talking about, uh, Avril, is currently treating victims from that hospital blast on Tuesday. Is there anything you're able to tell us about those victims, about the conditions, anything that you understand from your contacts with doctors there? One of the most devastating things that we've heard uh, in many days, uh, this has been going on for quite a time, is that there's a lack of painkillers. There's a real shortage of anesthesia. And again, the, those surgical teams are going to have to ration. They're going to have to choose who gets it, who doesn't, uh, who gets the life-saving surgery, who doesn't. Triage, of course, is a, a, a really difficult moral, uh, ethical choice based on medical criteria, but it's never easy. Uh, so we know that since the beginning of the siege, the hospitals have been overwhelmed. Uh, people are also so exhausted, including the medical teams that have been working around the clock. Uh, everyone is dehydrated, malnourished, hungry. Uh, it, it's really a, a difficult circumstance in which to be able to even focus on a mass casualty response that's needed. And, and, and Doug, let me ask you about one more thing, because you heard Ibrahim Daman, that's our producer. He's there with his children. You know, they've been sleeping on the floor and he talks about water and that there's just enough water, uh, not enough water. And they've had to boil toilet water. I've heard that from a pediatrician, an American pediatrician. Uh, again, the toilet water situation, uh, the teacher from Florida who's there saying the issue is water is the issue right now more than anything. How dire is the water situation, Avril? Doctors Without Borders or Médecins Sans Frontières, we very much agree with that. It is a priority. In order to bring in uh, the fuel necessary to restart those desalination and the chlorination and all the things that would allow filtration of the water that's available, often very salty and brackish water, it's vital. It's essential for life. We also need, of course, medicines uh, because the hospitals have empty shelves at this point. Uh, they have consumed what was available and other places where you might have some stocks are too dangerous 
interest to be able to, to go between and bring the supplies in. And this is one of the most critical issues. So those trucks that are uh, waiting to be able to bring in the life-saving supplies, we really implore that, that the shortages are going to kill uh, many, many people. Uh, it's absolutely life or death at this point, hour by hour. Um, it, it's it's essential for that for that humanitarian assistance to be able to be brought in, and of course we're deeply concerned with everyone for for the fate of everyone who happens to be in Gaza right now, where nowhere is safe. There's constant bombardment, even in the areas that are purported to be safe, and you have a lot of people with international passports that are as desperate as others uh, to find some safety and uh, hopefully be able to leave. Uh, securely yeah. and uh, and you know without all the constant bombardments that an end to the bloodshed. Avril Benoit, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. And we do just have some news into CNN, hugely significant news, hugely significant for so many here in Israel. The IDF is saying that the majority of hostages held in Gaza by Hamas are alive. The majority. Now, they say that the number of these missing, <clears throat> of those missing is 100 to 200, with over 20 under the age of 18, and between 10 and 20 of them over the age of 60. Phil and Poppy, obviously, they've said that there are 203 hostages. The majority could be 51% of that. We don't know. It could be the it could be the vast majority, right? It could be almost all. We don't know. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you that even hearing those words for the people we've been speaking to, my God, the hope that they will be given this morning. Also, Aaron, hearing the ages, you have 20, according to the IDF under 18 years old, children. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, 20, and we've been seeking to some of them. You know, we know a couple that are ages two and four, uh, and that is going to give such hope to their father. Absolutely. Aaron, we'll get back to you very soon. Thank you very much. And we're following these developments. We continue to out of the Middle East. Meantime, here in the United States, a circuit court judge was shot and killed in Maryland. What we know about that investigation. And Travis King, the U.S. Army private who fled to North Korea in July, has been charged with desertion, among several other offenses. The new details ahead. The terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others. <clears throat> in Israel, I saw people who are strong, determined, resilient, and also angry, in shock, and in deep, deep pain. President Biden urging all Americans to get behind support for Israel following his high-stakes trip there earlier this week. Joining us now is Ellie Beer, the president and founder of United Hatzalah, a volunteer emergency medical service organization in Israel that was among the first responders to October 7th's Hamas attacks. He's an Israeli-American who met with President Biden in Tel Aviv. You can see him right there. On Wednesday, Ellie, uh, I appreciate your time. There's a lot I want to get to, but I want to start with the news that we just got uh, from the IDF that they say a majority of the hostages in Gaza uh, are alive. I know two uh, volunteers in your organization uh, were taken hostage. Do you have any information on them at this point? Well, we're praying and crying all day for them and for the rest of the hostages. Our volunteers were kidnapped together with their spouses. And uh, this, this is really the hardest part. Some of our volunteers were murdered. Some uh, were injured. The ones who were captured, uh, we're worried about the, the most. The ones who died at a funeral already. 
and they're buried and everyone is sad and they're going to remember them forever. But the ones who are there, we all know the Hamas treatments. These are ISIS people. These are not people who have five-star treatments. And we're really worried about them. Everyone in Israel is worried about the people who are, who are right now in captive by Hamas. When you think about October 7th, when you think about what you're talking about right now, uh, those who died, those who are currently being held captive, I, I was struck when the president was visiting with you uh, in his public remarks, he quoted Yates saying, too long a sacrifice makes the stone of the heart, and then said that none of your hearts have turned to stone. It, it feels like a good capture of what your organization represents. But do you think that's the case in the wake of such horror? Well, I think Israel's united, and the beautiful part is United Hatzalah, we have volunteers from all sectors. We have Arab Muslim volunteers and Jewish ultra-Orthodox volunteers and everything in between, Catholics and, and Protestants, everyone a volunteer in one organization in Israel. And during this time, more than ever, we all united. And our volunteers are down south now, helping people, rescuing people during the first minutes of, of this attack, of this terrible uh, terrorist, worst terrorist attacks we ever, ever, ever had. We had two volunteers murdered. One of them was a Muslim Arab volunteer from Nazareth. And the other one was a Jewish volunteer from the south of Israel. And they were both busy saving lives and when they were captured and murdered. And that's, I think that resembles Israel. If you go around Israel now, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, everywhere, you will see Jews and Arabs walking around, even hugging each other. We are all together against the Hamas here. We know, and I think the, the world now realizes, that the Hamas are not freedom fighters. They are not interested in having their own state. They want to destroy and kill everyone here in Israel. They want to kill our babies. They want to kill our animals. I saw it in my own eyes. I went into the homes of, unfortunately, the people who were murdered. Children were chopped up to pieces. But not only that, that they killed our children, they killed old people, Holocaust survivors that they murdered and tortured. They also did a lot of terrible things to animals. They killed animals. They shot, I saw one dog was shot 15 times. Why do you shoot a dog 15 times? What's the purpose? And I think the reason they all did this is not to fight for freedom, but to destroy Israel. And I'm so bothered by this because this, God forbid, could have been a lot worse. Think about 1,500 people were murdered. It could have gone a lot further into Israel. It's a big miracle. Do you feel like medical professionals were targeted in this attack? Yes, definitely. One of our volunteers, actually a, a Bedouin Arab volunteer of United Cell. You know, I'm an Orthodox too. And I am so proud that I am together with volunteers who are non-Jewish, who are not like me, who have, we don't go to the same synagogue. And, uh, when I started this, when I was 16 years old, I started with 15 of my friends. We were all Orthodox. And we grew this, and we called it United Hatzalah. Hatzalah means save. And this Muslim Bedouin doctor was on the way to uh, his hospital in Ashkelon. And then he gets a call from the Hatzalah. We have an app that calls you to the closest call. He didn't know it was a terrorist attack. Someone was laying in the street, and he got a call that someone is, needs help. And he didn't understand it was a terrorist attack. When he arrived on the highway, this was 625, he found someone on the street. Then a terrorist jumped on him and caught him and started shooting him in his leg. And he started screaming in Arabic, I'm an Arab, I'm an Arab. And he started questioning him about 
you know, the Quran, right. once he realized he's an Israeli Arab volunteering for United States, he had a jacket like this with an Israeli flag on it. They tortured him, they hung him on a pole, and they and they kept him there for nine hours while they were shooting and killing people till the special forces were able to rescue him. We we all feel it here in Israel. This organization resembles what Israel is all about. And right now, having you show the world what, what's really happening here, it's really important for us. We want to get this over. We want to go back to a nice, normal life, like, like in Palm Beach, like in New York. We want to live a nice, good life. We appreciate your time more than that. We appreciate the work that you and your team uh, do. Elibir, thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, thank, I want to wish uh, a recovery for all our volunteers in uh, Israel Rescue. This, uh, we have so many people injured, also emotionally, by the way. We didn't speak about hundreds of emotional uh, injuries and physical injuries. Thank you so much. Found in important words yeah. from him. All right, in just over an hour in Washington, D.C., Congressman Jim Jordan is going to hold a news conference ahead of his third speaker vote. As those who oppose his speakership have been receiving threatening calls, all of that straight ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. Congressman Jim Jordan is going to hold a press conference in a little over an hour. He is pledging to stay in the race for House Speaker despite two failed votes this week. The House expected to hold that third vote today at 10 a.m. Eastern time. And Jordan met with some of the Republican holdouts yesterday, still trying to win them over in his bid to become Speaker. This guy refuses to lose, and that's okay. I, I find that to be very good. But at there's some point that we're going to have to move forward, and we can't keep the country shut down. Joining us now, our congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox. Lauren, good morning to you. Interesting that he's going to hold this press conference. Is it an effort to try to sway some of those folks like Kelly we just heard from or just to update the American people? Yeah, Poppy, this is an uphill climb, though. His intention for this press conference this morning is really to try and rally support that up until this point he has been unable to garner with some of those members behind closed doors. You saw Mike Kelly there. He is a Republican from Pennsylvania who me and my colleague Manu Raju spoke to yesterday after that closed door meeting with Jim Jordan. But a source who was in the room for that meeting told me that the message from members who met with him, some of those holdouts was there is no path for you to become speaker. The person told me that the message they meant to deliver in that room was it's over. Move on. Clearly, Jim Jordan is not taking that message to heart. He's going to have this press conference this morning. Then the intention is to go to the floor at 10 a.m. And one of his closest allies, Warren Davidson, tweeted last night that Members should be prepared to stay on the floor all weekend and continue voting. Whether or not that comes to pass, of course, remains to be seen. But it just shows you, Poppy, that despite the fact that, yes, there are many members telling Jim Jordan to move on, he's not taking the hint. 
Lauren, what do we know about the threats? So many of the members that are very clearly opposed have been citing threats to themselves, threats to their family members. What do we know? Yeah, Phil, I'm so glad you brought this up because I think one of the things that people don't realize who aren't on the Hill every day is just how raw the nerves are for these Republican members, in part because now this is extending not just to themselves, but to their families. I want you to take a listen to a message that was left to a wife of a congressman who voted against Jim Jordan. Here it is. Warmongering piece. So listen. You're going to keep getting calls and emails. I'm putting all your information over the Internet now. Everybody else is. And you will not be left alone because your husband, Jim Jordan, or more conservative, or you're going to be molested like you can't ever imagine. And again, nonviolently. And... I mean, just listening to the vitriol in that message, members are getting calls, their staff uh, are getting calls. And I think one thing to keep in mind here, I talked to Representative Don Bacon. He said that he had talked to his wife and she had gotten a series of terrible calls the night before last. And he said he called her in the morning to check in on her. And she said that she had slept okay because she had a loaded gun. I mean, that tells you just how worried, how concerned members of Congress are, and just how deeply, deeply scarred the Republican conference is right now. I mean, it is beyond comprehension that that is happening. Uh, but it is, Lauren, thank you for the reporting. We'll see what Jordan says in just about an hour. We'll carry it live here. Phil. Well, this morning, an investigation is underway in Maryland after someone shot and killed a judge. Investigators say Circuit Court Judge Andrew Wilkinson was found in a residential driveway last night suffering from gunshot wounds. He later died at the hospital. CNN's Miguel Marquez is live with the latest. The big question, are there any leads here, any suspects? It sounds like they might have something. The sheriff's office in Washington County, Maryland, says that they're going to hold a press conference later today. We expect to find out a lot more. Obviously, when a judge is shot, the big question is, was he targeted or she targeted? We've seen this in the past. Uh, it is a great concern. This was a circuit judge in Washington County, Maryland. This is just below the Pennsylvania line. He's one of six judges there. They handle everything from family law to civil, criminal, juvenile stuff. So it is possible that there was somebody, a former defendant, current defendant, that this judge was dealing with that targeted him. Details on this thing are very sketchy right now. It was his home. Police responded, or law enforcement responded to uh, reports of a shots fired. They showed up in his own driveway, multiple gunshots. He died later at the hospital and now a full investigation is underway. Troopers in Maryland are now going to other judges out of an abundance of caution uh, to make sure that other judges are protected. This has obviously been a concern at the federal level with judges being threatened. Uh, so they are taking every precaution right now. We hope to learn a little, little bit more later. Please keep us updated when you do. Miguel, thank you. All right, in California, a federal judge there has just struck down the state's decade-old ban on assault weapons just weeks after striking down California's ban on high-capacity magazines. The district judge, Roger Benitez, ruled that the ban impedes on residents' Second Amendment rights and has no historical precedent. That, he says, is now required because of a landmark Supreme Court decision last year that changed the test that courts are mandated to use when determining the constitutionality of gun regulations. California's Governor Gavin Newsom dismissed that decision as, quote, direct insult to every victim of a mass shooting and their families. California's Attorney General filing an immediate appeal.
Also this morning, the U.S. military has charged Army Private Travis King with desertion, among other offenses. The 23-year-old fled to North Korea in July after being released from a detention facility in South Korea. King was brought back to the U.S. last month. Court documents reveal he's been charged with possession of child pornography, assaulting fellow soldiers, and disobeying a superior officer. His mother says she's concerned about him and believes he is in need of mental health services. CNN This Morning continues right now. President Biden laying out plans that he will be sending to Congress to support both Israel and Ukraine. When terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. How rare you see the president in this setting. Speaking from the Resolute desk, he's only done it two times. We reject all forms of hate, whether against Muslim, Jews, or anyone. Pro-Palestinian protests right outside the White House gate. Conflicts that have struck a chord here at home, not just overseas. Across the broader Middle East, we've seen protests in almost every country. Aid trucks lined up as long as the eye can see. That's to go into Gaza. Water is the issue right now. We don't have any utilities. Israel's defense minister telling troops they would soon see Gaza, quote, from the inside. And as you can see, very significant developments overnight. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. We have team coverage on the ground in Israel. Aaron Burnett live in Tel Aviv. Matthew Chance is near the border with Lebanon. President Biden back from the war zone. And today he is pushing Congress to approve more wartime aid for Israel and Ukraine. He made that case in a primetime Oval Office address. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. History has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going, and the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. There remains, of course, a major hurdle to Biden's aid request. Congress is currently paralyzed without a House speaker unable to pass anything. This all comes as Israeli leaders are signaling a ground invasion of Gaza could be imminent. Israel's defense minister visited troops massing near the border and told them that they would see, quote, inside of Gaza soon. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also visited troops. You see him there and asked if they were ready to deliver, quote, a hard blow. Overnight, the Israeli military says airstrikes pounded Hamas's underground tunnels, warehouses of weapons, and command centers. And Israeli forces have been launching deadly raids on the ground into the West Bank to capture Hamas operatives and obtain information about the hostages being held by Hamas in Gaza. Also this, just into CNN, the Israeli military says a majority of those hostages are alive. Again, the majority are alive. This is nearly two weeks after they were abducted during that massacre in Israel on October 7th. Early this morning, our Nick Robertson witnessed increased activity along the border, including flares and heavy machine gun fire. So let's go straight to our Aaron Burnett. She joins us live in Tel Aviv. So many significant developments, both in you know, what Israel is going to do next and that yeah. really significant update, Aaron, on the hostages. 
incredibly significant update, you know, and that is going to give such hope to so many uh, who are in such anguish and suffering here uh, that the majority are alive. Again, majority could mean anything, but I can tell you, Phil and Poppy, that some of the families we've been speaking to who have been desperately waiting for news have gotten some news over the past few days confirming, uh, in one case, that one of their children was a hostage. So the IDF does have a lot of information about these hostages, which may indicate a lot about what they're planning to do when they go uh, into Gaza. You saw the Prime Minister Netanyahu visiting troops as he was uh, bolstering morale um, uh, on last weekend when we were in one of the kibbutz that had been attacked by Hamas. He was there visiting troops. So this is the second time I'm aware of in the past five days that he's been on that front line, clearly feeling the need to bolster and build troops who have been sleeping in open air, coming in, driving 40 minutes day by day in buses. We see them coached uh, and coaches coming in and out uh, to do training and to get ready. And they clearly are ready. An IDF uh, spokesperson telling me the reserves are ready. And uh, there are some, uh, you know, again, who were talking last night to me, 2.30 in the morning, there was still a war cabinet meeting going on. That in and of itself isn't unusual. We have been seeing that night after night. Uh, but it is clear that nobody can continue in terms of a lack of sleep and a state of readiness like this for an indefinite period of time or even an extended period of time. And in North Israel's northern border, uh, there is also a watching, waiting, and a readiness. According to the IDF, one terrorist was killed in Lebanon amid a significant exchange of fire. The IDF is also calling on some 23,000 residents in a town near that border to evacuate. I want to bring in our Matthew Chance live in northern Israel. Uh, of course, what would be the second front in this already ongoing war? There has already been a lot of firepower up there. Matthew, what are you seeing today? Yeah, well, there's already been a lot of tension up here in the northern uh, frontier, close to the border with Lebanon and with Syria as well. We're in the town of Kiryat Shimona, which has got a population of just over 20,000 people. The order has now been given to evacuate that town because of the um, uh, ratcheting up missile threat coming from across the border in Lebanon. You can see behind me, there's a whole load of cars waiting to exit uh, Kiryat Shimona and the police and the army are here in some force uh, to try and make sure that's done in an orderly way. Buses are being laid on to take people who don't have their cars uh, to various locations outside of this danger zone. But look, the road itself out of Kiryat Shimona is currently blocked by the police and the army, and that's because there's been an incursion, according to Israeli Defence Forces, from Lebanon uh, by militants from the other side of the border into this side. They've shot three people on the border, they say already, three uh, militants trying to infiltrate Israel. There's another one person, according to the security officials here that we've spoken to, who is at large somewhere up there on Israeli territory. And so there's a big search operation uh, underway right now uh, to try and find that person. And until that happens, uh, the army tell me, and I've been speaking to them right here, they say they're not letting any civilians go any further than this. And so you can see they've got that roadblock there. They've got the spikes on the road. Uh, to make sure nobody uh, sort of rushes through the checkpoint, I suppose. But it just does, Erin, give you an indication of just how tense the situation is here and that, just how tense the situation is here right now, and, of course, how tense it could get once an invasion by the Israeli military into Gaza takes place, because it's then that we'll really know what the response of actors like Hezbollah is going to be. Are they going to fire massive barrages of missiles into this area and across Israel? or will they hold back? Well, you know, the people of Kiryat Shimona, the authorities at least, not taking any chances and are evacuating. Eric. Matthew Chance, thank you very much. Along that northern border, the possible second front with Hezbollah. Joining us now is Mark Regev. He is senior advisor to the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. 
Mark, I'm glad to speak with you again. I want to begin with the breaking news that we have. The IDF has just confirmed that more than half of the hostages, of course, Israel has said there are 203 of them, are alive. Um, the majority, I'm sorry, they've said the majority. So that's my question. What does majority mean? Is there any more information you can give? Is majority almost all of them or is it just over half? Do you know? So we're talking about, and, and obviously it's a very difficult situation, but we, we've said that what we know, they're alive. We can't talk about everyone, and I can't be more specific than the statement is in itself. All right, let me ask you one other thing in the statement, because I wasn't totally clear, and I want to make sure I understand and everyone understands as we've been speaking to so many of these anguished families. You say that there are 20-plus hostages under the age of 18. Are you saying that there are 20-plus hostages known to be alive under the age of 18? or you So 20-plus under the age of 18, you know to be alive. I, I cannot be more specific than the statement. I apologize. You've got to remember that Hamas is not sharing any information with us of value. You've got to remember these people were taken. We've still got lots of Israelis who are unaccounted for. We don't know if they're dead somewhere or if they're in Gaza. There's a lot of things we don't know. We do know the total number of hostages we estimate in Gaza, that we, the 203. We know that that number could rise because we've got the people that we are unaware, they're just listed as missing. Uh, and every day we learn something new. But I can't share with you, and I apologize, more precise information. And if think about how the families yep. think of those people who are unaccounted for. Uh, uh, think about the families. I, I, I uh, saw yes. them outside uh, where we are today. Uh, they're meeting uh, the suffering of all those who've got loved ones who, who are in Gaza. It's a terrible, terrible situation. And I would suggest that the message yes. from the international community has to be that all people abducted by Hamas and Islamic Jihad and in Gaza, they have to be unconditionally and immediately released. Holding hostages this way is a war crime. We know it from organized crime, the mafia, you know, they kidnap people and ask for, for ransom. This is not the way people behave. And uh, I think Hamas is exposing itself for what it is, a brutal, ruthless, <laughs> horrific terrorist organization. We saw that in the murders and we see that in the kidnappings. Yeah. Mark, the prime minister, uh, you're, you're, of course, your your friend uh, here. You, you've you've worked together for so many decades. Was along the border here, visiting troops at least the second time in five days uh, to bolster morale. Uh, you know, we see those troops, hundreds of thousands of them. We see how they're sleeping and eating at, at barbecues. Right? They they're waiting, and they're waiting for the call, and they're ready. And we also hear, of course, the defense minister of Israel saying soon they will see the inside of Gaza or Gaza from the inside, as he put it. Mark, how much pressure do you feel right now? Does the prime minister feel to do something for those troops, to give them uh, the call to move simply because there's only so long they can wait in ready stance? So we are at the moment ready to act. Uh, uh, we've spent the first few days of this crisis cleaning out the terrorists who had entered our own territory and we're building up our forces and we're, we're ready to move. And if you've interviewed any of those soldiers on the front, you know there's a determination to go and to do what needs to be done. Yes. Now, as has been said by, by uh, uh, leading Israelis, the prime minister down, we know that there'll be difficult fighting. And I think the soldiers who are going into battle know 
that they are risking their lives. We are facing a formidable enemy, a brutal enemy, an enemy uh, that will try to kill as many of our fighting men and women as they can. And we go into this battle, though, united in knowing that this is necessary. No country should have to live next to a, a, a terrorist enclave like Israel has had to live next to Gaza. These people massacred, massacred Israelis on October 7th, uh, uh, brutally murdering us. Uh, we will change the situation. We refuse to live in proximity, in immediate proximity to these murderous terrorists. And when this is over, and we will have paid a price, I have no doubt that those brave young men and women, not all of them will be coming back, and they know that. But the price is worth paying. We will free Israel from this terrorist threat that is a plague upon our country. And in doing so, we will also free Gaza from this tyrannical, tyrannical, authoritarian theocracy. The people of Gaza also deserve better. Mark, I know that obviously you have 350,000 troops on the border. We don't know how many you'll be sending in in, in, in an incursion. We know there were maybe a couple thousand or half that. We've been unclear on the exact numbers of Hamas fighters who came over on October 7th. Do you have a specific idea of how many Hamas fighters await you on the other side? How many of them do you anticipate there are? How big is their fighting force? So our working assumption has to be that they are waiting for us, that they are prepared for an Israeli assault. And our challenge will be to surprise them tactically on the ground, to catch them unaware. And therefore, I'm not going to go into any details whatsoever about Israeli military plans. I can say this. We will win and we will win decisively. And when this is over, the Hamas military machine in Gaza will be destroyed and their political structure in Gaza will be dismantled. Those are the goals of this operation. Mark, let me ask you one final question. Yesterday, you said you anticipated there would be movement on the Rafah border crossing today. Your words carry a lot of rate, uh, weight. Uh, sources subsequently told CNN that was not likely to be the case. And indeed, here we are at uh, 2.15 local time, and that border is not open. Do you know what happened? What went wrong? I think we're still talking about something that is ongoing. From our perspective, we have, and I repeat, we have no problem whatsoever with water, food, medicine going to the civilian population, especially in the South where so many people have vacated themselves because of the expected heavy fighting in the North. Uh, we're uh, in favor. Uh, uh, if there are problems, it's coming from Hamas, which as you know, refuses, refuses to, to uh, stop its firing from the area in the south against us, which refuses and, uh, uh, to give commitments that it will not steal aid that's headed for the civilian population. But we had a clear arrangements uh, agreed to with President Biden when he was here, and we will stick to those commitments. Can I also add, uh, we haven't talked about it, President Biden's speech last yes. night was welcomed across the board here in Israel. Uh, the way he stated it, you know, a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, they're not necessarily focused on foreign policy necessarily the whole time. President Biden explained why what is going on here is crucial, not just for Israel, but for the United States and for the entire world. It's crucial that we defeat Hamas. Just as ISIS was defeated in Iraq and Syria, we will defeat Hamas in Gaza. And in doing so, 
we're not only doing ourselves a favor in, in, in protecting mm -hmm. our people from this terrible threat, but we're doing the world a favor. Hamas, as the president said, is sheer evil, and we will eliminate that evil. Mark Rega, thank you very much. And of course, he did use those words, unleashed pure, unadulterated evil uh, from President Biden last night. Mark, thank you so very much. I appreciate it. And as Mark was just talking about President Biden in that primetime speech, cast this moment in history as an inflection point. Very clear to say that, saying that it was a battle for democracy. We have some new polling about how Americans really do feel about that, how much they care about that, and how they feel about Biden's handling of the wars in Israel and Ukraine. We'll be back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances are what keep us, America, safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. That was President Biden last night delivering an impassioned plea to Americans in that primetime address, an effort to build support for more U.S. aid to Israel and Ukraine. And today, the White House will be officially requesting north of $100 billion from Congress to support the wars abroad. With us now, CNN contributor, staff writer for The New Yorker and the author of the Biden biography, Joe Biden, The Life, The Run and What Matters Now, Evan Osnos. Evan, it's very good to have you. Uh, there were a number of striking lines in the president's remarks, including making this an argument for an investment that would pay dividends in the future. But also striking was a reminder of the mistakes America made post 9-11. Clearly a message to Netanyahu and Israel in this moment. Listen to that. When America experienced the hell of 9-11, we felt enraged as well. While we sought and got justice, we made mistakes. So I caution the government of Israel not to be blinded by rage. So he said that, and it comes with, remind people of his perspective, voting as a senator for the Iraq war, coming to regret it uh, later. And that message that he made last night while supporting Israel, but also saying, learn from us. Yeah. Yeah, that's an essential piece of this. You know, he's trying to strike a balance between calling for action and also warn against the dangers of excess. You know, this was about connecting the dots, right? He was saying to Americans, you are, I know, fatigued by 20 months of supporting both in moral support and military support what's been happening to Ukrainians in their defense against Russian aggression. And then he's saying, I know you are now looking at the events of the last 13 days and saying we are facing yet another war. But his argument was this, that if we do not do something now, ultimately the effect will redound on Americans. Mm -hmm. It'll affect American values and it'll ultimately affect American security. Evan, do you think, I was texting back and forth with an administration official last night and said, you know, this is clearly his comfort zone. You know that better than anybody. And the official replied back, this isn't a comfort zone. This is his entire theory of the case. Um, you've written about this. You've talked about this repeatedly. Is there concern that it's just not going to end up connecting? That fatigue is real. You can look in the poll numbers on Ukraine as they have gone month by month and see it. Do you think there's concern inside the White House it won't connect? I think you, you hit the nail on the head, Phil, which is the idea that this is an argument in some ways, just an iteration, an argument he's been making since 2019 when he got into this 
race to be the president of the United States when he said that democracy as a fundamental American value was under attack. It's never been the kind of thing that is immediately popular with Americans. But it, his belief is that it is like a dull ache just below the surface. Americans know that there is something at the core of who we are as a people that is under attack, both at home mm -hmm. and around the world. And this was about putting that in the foreground and saying to people, look, this is, I know we are asking a lot of you. Um, but he reached back to World War II. I mean, he explicitly sort of tied this into a classic perception of American capacity and values. And values really is in the foreground. You know, he quoted uh, Madeleine Albright calling America the indispensable nation and making this argument that, Evan, America can do things that other nations just can't, that it is one of the things that makes America exceptional. What did you hear to that effect in the president's remarks last night? Yeah, that was an, an extraordinary moment because in some ways it's countercultural. The mm -hmm. fact is over the last decade, we've sort of come to imagine the idea that America's position is constrained. Our capacity is constrained. We may not have the credibility, the the money, frankly, to be able to continue to play a role in the world that we had during the Cold War and afterwards. And I think his argument, and let's be clear, some Americans won't agree, but his argument is this is not a chance, a moment, an opportunity for us to sit back. This really calls upon Americans, both because our friends are asking for help, but also because our adversaries are watching our actions. And the key concept, and this goes throughout his, really his political career, is that when dictators or terrorists are not stopped, ultimately they will continue to march forward. And that's the idea that he wants Americans to walk away with because his belief is that yes, it's gonna cost us now, he's about to ask Congress to find it within themselves to fund not only uh, Ukraine but also Israel, uh, and that if we don't do it, ultimately the globe's stability and American security is in peril. The last bit I'll mention on this, which I think is important, is you heard him say something directly to Americans, mm -hmm. saying that Americans deserve to be safe if they are Jews or Muslims from attacks here at home. And he said, you are all Americans. You know, that is an idea that gets lost in a moment like this. And I think it's something that he wanted to put in explicit terms. Evan Osnos, uh, we appreciate your expertise as always. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, the next hour, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan planning to hold a news conference after two failed attempts so far to become House Speaker. Can he flip the holdouts by the next expected vote later this morning? Ahead, we'll also be joined by the parents whose 23-year-old son was kidnapped and taken hostage into Gaza in the initial Hamas attack nearly two weeks ago. As the IDF now says, the majority of the hostages taken are alive. Welcome back. I'm Erin Burnett. I'm live here in Tel Aviv. There has been a delay in the humanitarian aid that has been expected and waiting on that Gaza-Egypt border. Sources telling CNN that the Rafah border crossing will not open today, as had been expected and advertised. U.S. officials now anticipating the first convoy of humanitarian aid to cross the border this weekend. We'll see if that's the case. Uh, they're optimistic. They say they have a deal, but thus far... Uh, We've heard that and it hasn't yet happened. This new video showing the line of trucks waiting to bring that aid into Gaza. 20 trucks are expected to enter once the crossing opens. The UN saying it needs 100 trucks a day to provide the adequate aid to the people inside Gaza. In the last hour, we heard from the UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, who is at the Rafa border crossing. Here's what he said. Behind these walls, we have two million people that is suffering enormously. 
So these trucks are not just trucks. They are a lifeline. They are the difference between life and death for so many people in Gaza. What we need is to make them move, to make them move to the other side of this wall, to make them move as quickly as possible. This morning, the IDF says that the majority of the hostages being held by Hamas are alive and that over 20 of the hostages are children under the age of 18. 23-year-old Hirsch Goldberg Poland is one of the hostages taken by Hamas. His parents have been desperately working to find him, not sleeping, talking so the world can hear them and know that their son is there. Hirsch was attending the music festival when Hamas militants attacked. He went into a bomb shelter seeking safety along with so many others. Hamas militants, as you have all now painfully had to hear, were throwing grenades into those shelters, shooting at anyone trying to take cover or to run outside. Joining us now, Hirsch's parents, Rachel and John, and I very much appreciate uh, both of you. I know you're just getting the news. You're just getting the news right now that the majority of the hostages are alive. I know that you've believed this in, in your heart and soul, but when you heard the IDF say that, when you hear this news, Rachel and John, what goes through your heart? Look, for 14 days now, we've looked for optimism anywhere we could find it. The irony of this whole situation, as we've talked about, is who in the world could have imagined 15 days ago any parent saying, thank God our child was captured by Hamas with an arm blown off, taken into Gaza, and that's good news. But we've taken some solace in that's good news. So everywhere, we've been looking for optimism. I don't know anything about this report. I don't know the source of this report. I will say, if the source of this it's the report IDF. is Hamas. It's the IDF itself. They have just formally put it out. So it's the IDF, yes, the Israeli Defense Forces. We, first and foremost, are parents of Hirsch. We know that Hirsch was last seen with an arm freshly blown off, being taken captive. He is our primary interest. But of course, we're humans, we're parents, we're children of parents, and we care about all of the 200 hostages. And the news that maybe the majority of them <laughs> are alive half of them. is it is it's good news. It's, it's better. Not. It's better than thinking all 200 are dead. But saying the majority of 200 people are alive. I mean, sure, if 101 of them are alive, I guess that's better than having 200 of them dead. But it's not super solace for us. And also, we don't know that anyone's getting medical. I know exactly. Right, and I know, I know that Hirsch, of course, was was seriously, grievously injured uh, in the arm. Um, and I, I, I do want you all to know, we did ask um, the IDF, to your point, Rachel, whether whether majority means half, uh, just over half, or whether majority means all. And they they wouldn't elaborate beyond saying majority. Um, so we so we did try to get get more clarity on that. Um, I, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about something I know that you had the opportunity to do with all the, the frustration and pain and waiting. You did have an opportunity to talk to President Biden. I know it was supposed to be a brief conversation with, with parents like yourself who are suffering, and it went a lot longer than expected because he wanted it to. Is there anything you can share with us about that conversation? So a week ago today, although it feels like eight years ago, we got on a call 
the U.S. administration told the parents of American hostages that President Biden might get on, and if so, it would be for a few minutes, and the president stayed on with us for 90 minutes. He listened to us. He cried with us. He got screamed at by people, not who were angry at him, but just expressing their frustration at the fate of the world. And he listened and he said, I understand the importance of screaming. And if I need to get back on with you tomorrow for you to scream more, I will do it. So his empathy has been remarkable. And I'll say beyond that, the U.S. administration, Congress has been saying all of the right things. The empathy is there. And I hope that the action is there as well. Um, you know, we're 14 days in and we love getting sympathy and empathy and hugs. We want action. And right now, we have not yet seen it. Yep. Oh. Rachel and John, how, how do you feel? And, and maybe I don't know if you you have a specific view on it, but knowing that the IDF is about to go in, they've made that very clear, knowing that the majority of the hostages are alive. How do you even capture your feelings about that, about them going in and what that could mean for the hostages? How do you feel about that? I mean, we really understand that what happened on October 7th can never happen again. And the whole entire country, us included, is completely traumatized by what happened. Um, and we trust that the army, that the Israeli army is going to do its very best, as it always tries to avoid any civilian casualties. War in any situation is a terrible game to play. There's always innocence who get hurt. And obviously now for us personally, as parents of someone who's there, we feel it more intensely. But we always feel that no matter where the conflict is taking place anywhere in the world, when you know in Ukraine that there are innocent people, you know, who are in the way when a real conflict is taking place. When, when it happens here, it's the same. Um, and we are just praying and hoping that, um, you know, innocent lives, including our own child's life, is not uh, harmed in this action that has to happen. Rachel and John, thank you very much for speaking with us. I know that the exhaustion of, of talking to the media and, and, and telling a story is got to be a lot to bear. Thank you very much. Phil and Poppy, back to you. Thanks for having us. Aaron, thank you very much for that, for speaking to them and for that update. Well, the White House is expected to submit an urgent budget request to Congress today to aid the war efforts in both Israel and Ukraine. The House, though, does not have a speaker, and without one, they cannot get that done. Republican Congressman Tim Burchett was one of the eight GOP members who voted to oust McCarthy from his speakership. He promised he'd come back to our show if there was no speaker by Wednesday of last week. It's been nine days. He's back. We're going to ask him what's up next. Well, in just minutes, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan planning to hold a news conference after two failed attempts so far to become the House Speaker. Later today, the House is expected to hold its next vote for that position. And that comes as anger and frustration among Republicans is boiling over. And I know that sounds evergreen, but this one in particular was rough. Jordan, the hard right Republican nominee, appears no closer to getting the gavel this morning after meeting yesterday. Mainstream members who oppose that bid. 
The vote comes after a day of Republican feuding and dysfunction. During a heated closed-door GOP conference meeting, some members railed against Jordan, multiple sources told CNN. One swore at Congressman Matt Gates, who led the rebellion against former Speaker Kevin McCarthy. My next guest is one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust McCarthy, setting in motion this leadership vacuum. And he told me last week he expected the Speaker drama to be hashed out the next day. I totally expect us to have a speaker by Wednesday. We will um, come out of conference united in that. All right, Congressman Tim Burchett, uh, can you promise me that if you don't have a speaker by Wednesday, we can talk about it on Thursday on the show? We sure can. And if I, we are, I'll be gravely mistaken and I'll be very upset. Republican Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee joins me now. And, uh, sir, I'm not playing that to, to make you look like you didn't have the crystal ball, but to your point that you'd be gravely upset how are you feeling right now as we enter this next day? I'm a little tired, but it's it's just the process. And and um, I guess I should have said which week of Wednesday. I, I, didn't, I didn't make that clear. <laughs> but no, I, you know, it, it is a process. We followed the rules um, when when we vacated the chair, and that's exactly what we did. And, um, and those rules were followed to a T. Now we're just going back in. We're going back in at 10 today and, and get a little closer, I hope. Do you have an end game to the process? And I know you support Congressman Jordan. Uh, I know you would like to see this end today if your speaker designate got the votes. He doesn't have them. It seems like he's losing more by the day. Uh, what is the process here? Well, the process is to let the nominee make that decision. That is the process. That's always been the process. Kevin was allowed to go 15 rounds, and and Jim is 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 gone two rounds now. So. It's ultimately going to be up to Jim and what he decides to do and the, and the people that are close to him. But right now, Jim's our nominee, and that's who I plan to support. But when Steve Scalise was the nominee, I supported Steve as well when we walked out of that first meeting. So right. we'll just see. The, the party um, will come together. This will be a blip in, in, our, in our rearview mirror when we're finished with this. Y'all will be on to all new scandals by then. <laughs> I, I mean, I think the one thing that has me pause a little bit beyond the lack of precedent for this moment. And to your point, you followed all the, the rules, the, the eight who voted to vacate. Uh, but moments like this, my colleague Jake Tapper played uh, this voicemail for, that a member's wife received. Take a listen. Warmongering piece So listen, you're going to keep getting calls and emails. I'm putting all your information over the internet now. Everybody else is. And you will not be left alone because you're husband, Jim Jordan, or more conservative, or you're going to be molested like you can't ever imagine. And again, nonviolently. Congressman, besides how abhorrent that is, uh, I don't understand how the conference comes back from this moment when stuff like that is happening. Well, it happens every day. I, I could show you that and where the people have made horrible accusations and um, things they were going to do to members of my family. And I couldn't even get Capitol Hill police to respond to my phone calls about it. So it's a day to day occurrence. It happens on the left and the right. I'm conservative. I get those all the time. Um, I've gotten them from elected officials, for goodness sakes. The FBI has had to step in. So it's a day to day thing. It's horrible. Jim denounced it. Right. Um, you just have sick people in this world and they're and they're horrible and they, they need to have their butts kicked and they need to be thrown in jail. So, uh, yeah, I don't stand for any of that nonsense. That, that, that jerk is just a, here's the, those type of guys, they throw a rock over the fence and they run home behind their mama's skirt. 
And that's exactly who that dirtbag is. And he ought to be pulled in jail and he ought to spend some quality time there and, and understand his consequences. The, uh, that, Bacon, General Bacon, General Bacon's a good man. He's a good man. That's ridiculous. You call somebody's wife. Right. I mean, that shows you how gutless these people are on both sides. And look, that, don't judge the party by those. I don't judge the party by when Rashida Tlaib says something that I feel is anti-Semitic. I don't judge the whole Democratic Party for that. Oh, so, no, sir, know. to be clear, I'm not judging the party on that. I, I think it's just a little bit jarring, particularly when you hear it. And I think because it's intra-party, right? And, and so that's the very serious side of things. But there's also the very juvenile side of things of... Uh, members quote tweeting other members and then blocking members on Twitter and then those members saying that the problem is that members don't have balls. I'm quoting Nancy Mace after she was blocked by... This is what I'm talking about. I don't understand how the conference comes back together, like you say. That's a lot of different personalities. That's what happens when you have a very thin majority and, you know, people's people's tempers are frayed and they'll... They'll hug and make up and sing kumbaya, and that's, that's just what people do. But, you know, it's, it's the world we live in now. I mean, it's instantaneous. We've got these, these crazy cell phones, and, and people respond immediately. You know, I always used to say if you're going to write something or say something, you need to sleep on it for a little while. And obviously people aren't sleeping on it. They're just firing off. So, I, you know, there's a level of maturity and involved in all this, and it's just I, just I just don't get too worked up over it. I've been doing this most of my adult life and I've, I've seen and heard it all. I've had the death threats. I've had to have security details. I've, look, right. I've spent over $30,000 for security at my own house because of, of, of my family's situation and the threats that we've received. And I've had deputies out at my house. So just don't, don't publicize it. We live in a world of dirt bags and people are instantaneously want results and they're just not going to get it. And with cell phones, it gives them a whole new uh, amount of courage. I'm sure you could have a psychologist on here and analyze that. But again, General Bacon's, right. he's a good man. He is a good man. He's a friend of mine, and that's ridiculous. And I would, um, I would like to have some words with that person that said that to his wife personally. I think the good words are sleep on it before you tweet or leave voicemails. Uh, sir, we appreciate yes, sir. your time. I know it's been a, a crazy couple of weeks. Hope to have you back soon. Uh, talk policy instead of this. Um, right. Is it, does it get I'll done see today? You next Wednesday. Next Wednesday. I'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs> next Wednesday. All, right. All right. I pray. I, I wake up in the middle of the night and I say my prayers. I say, Lord, I want you, let your will be done, but could you please give us a speaker today? <laughs> Tim Burchett, Congressman from Tennessee. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Always. Well, and we do know Congressman Jordan is set to speak at the top of the hour. Stick around for that. We'll be showing it live. There's anger continuing to spread across the Middle East and around the world, a growing number of anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian protests, just as President Biden warns against the rise of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. In his primetime address to the nation last night, President Biden made the case for more wartime aid to Israel and Ukraine. He also warned against the rise of Islamophobia as Israel prepares a ground offensive likely into Gaza. And I know many of you in the Muslim American community, the Arab American community, the Palestinian American community, and so many others are outraged and hearty, saying to yourselves, here we go again with Islamophobia and distrust we saw after 9-11. We must, without equivocation, denounce anti-Semitism. We must also, without equivocation, denounce Islamophobia. 
And joining us now is Israeli-Palestinian journalist and foreign policy analyst Rula Jabal. Rula, thanks for being with us again, especially after those important remarks from the president last night. This is also something he said in his address that was striking to me. Listen. Tonight, there are innocent people all over the world who hope because of us, who believe in a better life because of us, who are desperate not to be forgotten by us and are waiting for us. But time is of the essence. What is your read on how Palestinians still trapped inside Gaza feel when they hear those remarks? Do they feel that support from the United States? No, but also Palestinians in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, and the overwhelming majority of the Arab world understand that President Biden, and that's how they feel, and talking to them after last night, they think this was meant for a domestic audience, for the Americans. And uh, they see the unconditional aid to Israel. Yes, he cited the two-state solution, but he's unwilling to do anything to pressure Israel to stop to freeze settlement constructions or to rein in some of these very violent settlers that are in the West Bank where Hamas doesn't exist. So this is what they have been telling me, that Palestinians don't want charity, they want dignity, they want freedom, they want what the president said about freedom, self-determination. And the president cannot back uh, the fight of Ukrainians to liberate themselves from a military dictatorship, while in the same time enable the occupation of Palestinians in the West Bank, in East Jerusalem, while Israel carry what they are carrying in. So if those are only words in terms of two-state solution, but not backed by real deeds, this will go nowhere. And this will be seen as America's war, not only Israeli war, but this is an American war. Yeah, you, you warned about that just a couple of days ago when we had you on. I think it's notable the president's remarks last night and what happened earlier this week was that the United States was the sole veto of a U.N. Security Council resolution that would have called for a humanitarian yes. pause in aid uh, before any, you know, more offensive or ground offensive from the IDF. And we've just heard in the last 12 hours from the IDF, quote, you see Gaza now from a distance, you will soon see it from the inside. The command will come. And that is a quote. How are those you're speaking with, Palestinians in the Arab world, viewing that contrast of the U.S. being the sole veto on this as a ground incursion looks more imminent? Well, that's exactly what they talk about when they say America can speak about two-state solution while or they can speak about a resolution or a ceasefire or humanitarian aid while blocking a U.N. resolution. Security Council will be the only vote to basically uh, veto or, or, or not vote, vote against a humanitarian pause so people can have food, can have water, can have fuel, can have electricity. And they point out to the fact that America itself uh, considered the use of uh, food as a weapon of war, as a war crime in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. In the same time, they look at what's happening, what Israel policy is in Gaza and said, well, never mind. So there's, you know, double standard inconsistency that is the heart at the heart of the issue. So they, there's no trust that this administration will actually advance what they perceive, what they even profess as their own values in terms of two state solution as a resolution or, or even the region wants to break from the cycle of terrorism and tyranny. And America is not doing anything except giving more military aid. Well, also, 
uh, tens of millions of dollars in aid meant for the people of Gaza that is still this morning blocked uh, from getting in through the southern Rafah crossing. But Rula, I do want to ask you about something and ask your significance, given your foreign policy expertise in the region. You now have, talking about these protests that have now been sort of government approved in Egypt, an alliance of state-backed yes. political parties in Egypt calling for, for protests in support of Palestinians. The reason I ask this is because this is the first time that you have a government approved mass protest in Egypt in the last decade. How significant is that? It's very serious, Poppy. And that's what, you know, when they talk about we don't want any more charity, we want freedom and dignity, they're trying to tell to the president, who seems not to be listening to the region, of how they perceive this as an existential threat to the entirety of the regions. This will destabilize the region more than ever. It will come to Europe. This created already mass radicalization in the past, mass refugee crisis, the worst since World War II, and plunged the whole region in sectarian wars. They're trying to tell to the administration that you need to talk now to this Israeli government to put on the table something beyond humanitarian aid and more weapons for Israel. The solution has to be a political solution, yeah. which they convey as this is what every security apparatus in Israel said as the only solution. You mentioned Europe, and we did see the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak in Israel yesterday also uh, meeting with Saudi officials. Reuters reports will go to Egypt today. So clear focus uh, from them and him on this as well. Rula, thank you, as always. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you. Well, just into CNN, attorney Kenneth Chesbro, who was charged in the Georgia election subversion case, was just offered a plea deal. The details on that next. Also, in just a few minutes, moments from now, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan expected to hold a news conference after two failed attempts to become House Speaker. Former Trump attorney Sidney Powell pleading guilty in the Georgia election subversion case just one day before her trial was scheduled to start. She's been sentenced to six years of probation after admitting her role in a secret effort to access and copy election software in rural Coffee County. Powell is now the second of former President Trump's 18 co-defendants in that sweeping racketeering case to accept the plea deal and agree to testify against other defendants. CNN's Caitlin Polance joins us now. Um, what does this mean for the former president? I think is the top question on everybody's mind. Well, it's not good. That's the the basic answer. Whenever you have somebody who is choosing to plead guilty and cooperate, it means that they provide information to prosecutors that the people like Trump, another defendant in this case, might not know what that information is until it's put on display at trial when someone like Powell would be called to testify. And she's a really top person, right? Not just in what she's admitting to here related to Coffee County, Georgia, and the voting machine uh, attempted breach there, but also she's somebody that was around Trump and in the White House during the major push to sow disinformation in the court system with the American public and was even in the White House in December. Yeah. That key December 18th meeting. Look, she, by taking this plea, is going to have to admit things. She's going to have to admit things like, we knew it wasn't stolen. We knew it was a crime, et cetera. And now Kenneth Chesbrough has a chance. who's going to stand trial with her to plead out. What's he going to do? Right. So the timeline here is important. Powell and Ken Chesbro, another lawyer, were both set to have jury selection for their trial. 
in Georgia starting today. So Powell's not going to go to trial. And there is now, we know through uh, Nick Valencia in Atlanta, he has learned that Ken Chesbro has been offered a plea deal and is still thinking about what to do. He hasn't decided if he will <coughs> take that. And so these are two defendants that were going to go to trial first in this 19 defendant conspiracy case that includes Trump. Every person that is offered a plea deal and thinking about it, that could be a domino that falls, leaving potentially Donald Trump alone. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Thank you. CNN This Morning continues right now. This is CNN Breaking News. It is the top of the hour. I'm Poppy Harlow with Phil Mattingly in New York. Aaron Burnett live in Tel Aviv. And this morning we are monitoring two big stories developing right now. Jim Jordan about to give a news conference in minutes as he tries yet again to become House Speaker after failing multiple times. We are also following several big developments in Israel's war with Hamas today. President Biden is back from the war zone and calling on Congress to approve a new wartime aid package for Israel and Ukraine. In a primetime Oval Office speech, he called it vital for America's national security. I know these conflicts can seem far away. And it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? When terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going, and the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. But, of course, Congress is paralyzed right now without a House Speaker. They can't technically pass anything. This morning, the Israeli military says a majority of the hostages being held in Gaza are still alive, nearly two weeks after being abducted during Hamas's massacre in Israel October 7th. This all comes as Israeli leaders are signaling a ground invasion of Gaza could be truly imminent. Israel's defense minister visited troops massing near the border and told them they would see the, quote, inside of Gaza soon. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu also visited troops and asked them if they were ready to deliver, quote, a hard blow. And overnight, the Israeli military says airstrikes pounded Hamas's underground tunnels, warehouses of weapons and command centers. And Israeli forces have been launching deadly raids on the ground into the West Bank to capture Hamas operatives and obtain information about the hostages. Earlier this morning, our colleague Nick Robertson witnessed increased activity along the border, including flares and heavy machine gun fire. So let's begin this hour with Aaron Burnett live in Tel Aviv with so many developments, Aaron, including uh, some hopeful news about the hostages being held. Hugely, hugely hopeful news coming from the IDF. They say majority not clear what that means in terms of the numbers. 203 of them they have confirmed to be hostages. I should say we heard a couple FUDs earlier this morning. Just worth highlighting, uh, you know, we, we've been here uh, 10, 11 days now. There were days early on when there were lots of thuds from here from Tel Aviv that you could hear in Gaza. It appears that they have prepared that northern ground for whatever comes next. All of it, as we've seen through the week, has has moved further south, uh, as we've seen those activities uh, this morning. So we'll see what the day will bring, Poppy, uh, as you uh, have that major news coming, possibly on the House Speaker dysfunction back home. Very soon, because, Aaron, this is all connected, right? This is about, do you have a Speaker of the House who can approve yeah. a huge aid, aid package that the president needs Congress to approve to help on the ground right. in Israel? Aaron, back to you very soon. You're looking at the lectern where Jim Jordan will speak. Phil? I mean, look, you reported a long time on the Hill. Surprised that he's going to hold this address and he's, as he pushes forward to still try to become speaker, to 
despite multiple fails, failures. Having covered Jim Jordan, it's not a surprise that he's continuing to fight. When he's a wrestler. It, it's, he's, he's, a, he's a wrestler. He uh, is known as a fighter on Capitol Hill. I think the difference between fighting when you're a small number in the minority versus and fighting against leadership versus trying to become leadership is a very different dynamic. I think right now, you heard from Tim Burchard just a short while ago. I think he's walking in. They want answers and a speaker. Mm-hmm. And Jordan doesn't have the votes for that. So we'll see what he Thank says. Thank you all for coming. You know, a few years ago, um, Polly and I got a call from some friends living in the Dayton, Dayton, Ohio area. We live about 40 miles north of there, and they, they asked if we were free, free to go to dinner with them on a few nights later. And we said, sure. And they said, before we go to dinner, we're going to tour the um, Wright Brothers' homes. And we said, we said great. We, we enjoy history. Let's, let's learn about these amazing two Americans. And so we go there, and uh, we paid the lady at the door $5 from the Historical Society. And you go on this tour and you learn all these amazing things about the Wright brothers. You learn about the bicycle shop and the other things, the the gadgets and gizmos they tinkered with and built. Fascinating tour. Last stop on the tour is Orville Wright's uh, bedroom. And they tell you a few more things about this particular Wright brother. And then they close the tour out by showing you two pictures. First picture they hold up, that very first flight, 1903, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, in this thing they called a plane. And you first, first, first thought you'd see that, and you'd say, how did that thing get off the ground? And the truth is, it barely did. It flew like 100 feet, got a few feet off the ground. And you're thinking about that, and you sort of remember that picture from eighth grade, ninth grade, whenever they teach you that in school. And I thought, well, that, that's amazing. They put that picture down, and then they hold up a second picture. 44 years later, 1947, Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier in a jet. And I was like, wow, that I didn't know. That's amazing. And 44 years we go from two guys flying 100 feet to another American breaking the sound barrier in a jet. And literally, that was the end of the tour. They put that picture down, and Polly and I start walking out. And as we're walking out that door, it hit me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why did they stop there? I represent Wapakoneta, Ohio, Allglaze County, Ohio, hometown of Neil Armstrong, who 22 years after Chuck Yeager breaks the sound barrier, steps on the moon. Stop and think about it. In 66 years, one lifetime, we went from two guys flying 100 feet to putting a man on the moon. It is a great country, a great country, the greatest country in my judgment, made up of great people. And right now, those people, I think, are starting to doubt and wonder about their government and about where our nation is headed. They see an open border. They see crime in the streets. They know what it costs to put gas in their car. They know what it costs to put food on the table. They see a war in Israel, our strongest ally, Israel, and what's happening there, and the help that Israel needs. And they see a government that's been weaponized against we, the people. The very government that's supposed to serve us has been turned on the taxpayers who pay for it. I think the American people are thirsty for change. I think they are hungry for leadership. And frankly, they know that the White House can't provide it. They know the Senate won't lead. And they are looking for House Republicans to step up and lead and make change on these important issues. We got important work to do, important work to do. We need to help Israel. 
We need to get the appropriations process moving so that the key elements of our government are funded and funded in the right way, particularly our military. We need to get back to our committee work. And frankly, we need to continue the oversight work that I think is so darn important. In short, we need to get to work for the American people. We need to do what we said we were going to do. We need to do what we told them we were going to do when they elected us and put us in office. And frankly, we can't do that if the House isn't open. And if the, we, can't, we can't open the House until we get a speaker. My favorite scripture verse is 2 Timothy 4, 7. Paul's the old guy giving advice to the young guy, Timothy. And he says, fight the good fight, finish the course, keep the faith. And I tell folks, I love that verse because of the action in it. Because of the word. Americans aren't timid folks. They are people of action. And the words in that verse, fight, finish, keep, I think fit the American spirit. Americans expect their government to fight for them. They expect us to finish our work. And they expect us to keep faith with the principles and values that made us the greatest nation ever. Made us the nation that could go from the Wright brothers to Neil Armstrong. That's what we have to keep in mind. And that's the kind of attitude I think we got to have. The quickest way to get all this working is to get a speaker elected. That's what I hope we can do today. I'll take your questions. So lay out your path. Are you just going to call roll call vote after roll call vote today and tomorrow and into the weekend and try to wear your opponents down? Because it didn't seem like you stop, made any stop. progress yesterday. Well, you all, you all said that we were going to lose between the first vote and the second vote. You all said we were going to lose 10 to 15 votes. We stayed the same. We picked up a few. We lost a few. I think the ones we lost can come back. So uh, look, there's been multiple rounds of votes for speaker before. Um, we all know that. I just know that we need to get a speaker as soon as possible so we can get to work for the American people. Thank you, Congressman. So just to be clear, do you plan to grind this out this weekend if you don't get the votes today? And then secondly, President Biden, as we heard last night, is sending a $100 billion foreign aid package here you to make, Congress. You, is that something that you you're, ma you're, you're, making the, you're making the case for why we need to get the House open so we can evaluate the package. We can't do that, can't vote on that, can't pass anything in that. Uh, until we get the house open. So I got to see the package, but we certainly need to help Israel. Um, but I got to see the package. But again, we can't do that if the house isn't open. All the more reason why we need to get the house open as soon as possible. Mr. Jordan, Mr. Jordan, what do you say to the people, to the people of Israel, Prime Minister Netanyahu, that you're not able, that you're not able to provide aid to Israel because the house is so locked up? Again, I think you're making my case. I got 200 votes, the speaker designee from, from my colleagues. Um, the sooner we can get this accomplished, the better for the American people who expect us to work for them and for our friends and allies like the great state of Israel. In your conversation with members yesterday, were you able to get any of the ones who didn't support you previously to pledge to you that they would switch their votes? We, we, had, a, we had a good conversation, and we'll continue to do that. But uh, as, I, as I point out, the fastest way to get to work for the American people is to elect a speaker so the House can be open and we can get things done. I'll take, I'll take a couple more, a couple more. Just that. Just that. 
I think there were all kinds of problems with the 2020 election. I've been clear about that. My, my intention in forwarding the email was an argument made by former Inspector General for Donald Rumsfeld, accomplished lawyer who laid out an argument from the Federalist Papers. I forwarded it on to them. That, that was all it was. Our plan this weekend is to get a speaker elected to the House of Representatives as soon as possible so we can help the American people. Last one. What is your message for the people of Israel about we stand with, everyone's time when you clearly don't have the votes to be we, speaker? We, we stand with Israel. I've been there five times. Amazing, amazing people, amazing country, and we, we should do everything we can to help them. The quickest way to do that is to elect a speaker. Thank you all very much. You have been listening to Congressman Jim Jordan, the Ohio Republican, who has made clear he is not giving up. He is not dropping out. He will push forward for a third and potentially many more round of votes to become the next Speaker of the House. He is currently 0 for 2, lost 20 votes in the first time, lost 23, I believe, and the second time. There was some sense yesterday, as it seemed like he was bleeding support behind the scenes, even more support behind the scenes, that he would drop out. There was a very... Uh, airing of grievances like Republican closed door conference meeting full of lots of profanity and pushback. Uh, but Jordan has made clear he's going to stay in. He's made clear he's pushing forward. And I don't get the sense he feels like dropping out anytime soon. So what was the goal there? Because did he say anything different than he's been saying? We knew he was going to keep pushing. If I could analyze from afar, which is a little difficult, um, he wanted to look like a speaker. In that room, the Rayburn Room, um, is critical, but also giving a speech, uh, talking about the Wright brothers. I appreciate him making clear the Wright brothers, Ohio, not North yes. Carolina. We should win that battle. <laughs> um, but trying to make it look bigger and then talking about the need to move forward, especially in the context of the president sending up that aid package. Um, that would be my, my guess. We'll see. I, I have not heard some text messages saying this isn't going to change anything. We will, of course, see. We do want to bring in CNN political commentator and Spectrum News anchor, Errol Lewis, CNN Chief National Affairs Analyst and anchor of Early Start, Casey Hunt, and former Republican Congressman Charlie Dent. Um, Charlie Dent, do you think that moves members of your former conference? Uh, absolutely not. I, I think that many of these members who voted against uh, Jim Jordan over the past few days are dug in. Uh, and I think they are immovable objects, many of them. In fact, the people who are voting against Jim Jordan, these are not most, from what I can tell, these are not gadfly members. Many of these people are very serious, thoughtful members, members of the Appropriations Committee, including the chair, Kay Granger. And what's notable about the speech I just heard was that Jim Jordan said that, you know, he wanted to get the appropriations proce process moving. Now, I served in that Appropriations Committee for many years. I was one of the senior members of the committee, along with Kay Granger and Diaz-Balart and the others who are voting against Jordan. And I know why they're voting against Jordan. Because they have been working for years to be responsible, fund the government, and do things that must get done, only to have, uh, well, Jim Jordan in particular and others would undermine their efforts every step of the way when they were in the majority. And now they've said no. And they didn't do this lightly. They did this because they don't think that Jim is the right guy to, to help craft the types of deals that will need to be cut, like the one on November 17th to keep the government funding. That's what funded. That's what this is in large part about. They just don't think he's the right guy. In fact, I know that there are other members who have announced yesterday that they would not be supporting uh, Jim Jordan today. I didn't hear anything in that speech that would get any of those folks to flip. 
So, Errol, to you, same, same sort of question I asked Phil. What was the purpose then, and did he fulfill it? Look, he's trying, as far as I can tell, to sort of in real time do a makeover, try to recast uh, himself on the national stage as somebody who could be the speaker, you know, sort of uh, in the Rayburn room, talking broadly, talking in a way that is completely at odds with his actual history, mm-hmm. his political history, and even his legislative history, his history of not passing a bill. I was going to uh, say that's thin. Right. It's, it's, it's non-existent. And so... He's trying to sort of recast himself. Now, we've seen this before. There's any number of people who have remade themselves politically, and he's entitled to try. Um, It wasn't terribly convincing. Uh, I don't know what his colleagues think about this, but he's trying now to act like a responsible person, not a bomb thrower, not a legislative terrorist, which a former speaker uh, described him as, Boehner, um, both as a state legislator and in Congress. And so with a, a thin record, with a lot of people who have seen through a lot of his act, uh, with the threats and intimidation, by the way, which he didn't mention, yeah. but there are members of Congress who are being threatened from the outside, and this apparently is part of some of the strategy, whether it's authorized by him personally or just uh, sort of a wildcat action by his supporters. There are a lot of pro-Jordan people who were doing stuff that's really f- out, out of bounds and that is designed to sort of annoy members of Congress who I don't think we're going to see a big shift in the vote today. Casey, I was just one of the questions that was asked. He didn't directly answer it, but do you think the 2020 election was stolen? He he didn't answer that directly. He said, I think there are all kinds of problems with it. But that's one of the reasons why some are consistent in this party about not voting for him. And it also goes to the point Liz Cheney made, you know, about a week and a half ago about where he stood on that election and what he knew and what he, what he did. Right. I mean, Jim Jordan's uh, interactions with the events of January 6th concern a increasingly small group of Republicans in the House of Representatives. uh, But I think you're right to highlight it. Reporters are right to ask about it because we shouldn't ignore it. But look, I think that the point you're asking, why did he do this uh, today? And what was he trying to accomplish? I I heard a couple different things in his remarks. One, he's trying to underscore to conservatives that he is with them and that they should continue to approach this the way that they have been, which is they have been opposed to the idea that Patrick McHenry, uh, who has been the temporary Speaker of the House, should be empowered with the help of Democrats, right? They have been trying to underscore, we need to vote against that, we don't want that. And there are conservatives who are very angry at the possibility of that happening. He's talking to them. Those are his people. He said he wants to focus on oversight. What does oversight mean? Impeachment, uh, uh, inquiry into President Biden, inquiries into Hunter Biden's activities, et cetera. The pitch that he was making to those who have been voting against him was that the quickest way to get what you want is to vote for me. He kept saying over and over, the fastest way to get the House open is to elect a speaker. He's saying that only person available for that job right now uh, is me. He wouldn't answer how many times he was going to be doing this, but that was the push. And this was a different venue, as Phil noted, that we have seen from him. He is trying a different strategy Uh, the version that he has of the bully pulpit strategy that we would see uh, come out of the White House. The big question, obviously, is will it work or do the concerns about issues like uh, the election that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, like, quite frankly, his uh, legislative terrorist tendencies that John Boehner talked about, uh, are going to allow the government to continue at all. I mean, that's, I think, the, the, the concern that those appropriators have. So, uh, you know, his, his strategy right. is going to mirror what Kevin McCarthy's was, it seems. We're just not sure how long he'll last. All right. Uh, we will start to figure out in about an hour and 40 minutes when the potential vote starts. Casey Hunt, Errol Lewis, uh, former Congressman Charlie Dent, we appreciate it, guys. Stay with us. 
two big stories as we discuss that we're following. We want to go back uh, to Israel right now where Aaron Burnett is continuing to follow what is a very, very consequential day in Israel. Incredibly consequential day here and across the Middle East as uh, the United States doesn't even have a government in place for all intents and purposes to approve aid. And that's the reality. Uh, but of course, Sarah Seidner is in the West Bank. And indeed, we have reporters around the region. It is Friday. Uh, that is a day that people go to the mosque. And after, there have been calls for mass protests. Sarah Seidner is in Ramallah in the West Bank. And Sarah, what are you seeing? It was quiet earlier when people were attending mosque. Now they have left. And what are you seeing? It's not quiet anymore. Uh, just a few moments ago, we heard a gun gunfire, um, likely from the Israeli military that is posted up. I'm going to try to give you a bit of a shot of it, but uh, let me show you what's happening here. Uh, people came after the Friday prayers. They came to march in solidarity uh, with the Palestinians in Gaza who are dealing with both a humanitarian crisis, no food, no water, no fuel, uh, but also with a, a crisis of just getting the, the air strikes over and over and over again, which, which has killed killed uh, so many civilians um, who are not part of the government, not part of uh, the government that runs that, uh, that place, that strip, Hamas. So you are seeing this sort of uh, solidarity that was called for, by the way, by Hamas all over the Arab world and the world alike. But you are also seeing the journalists gathered here because this is kind of where the clashes ha happens. So, all right. We're going to you are genocide supporters. You are not welcome here. Genocide supporters. Fuck CNN. Fuck CNN. Genocide supporters. All right. You see that people are very angry. They do not like all right, all right, uh, the I way wanna, in which just... that, that CNN right. has been reporting the story. You hear that. But. This is, we're fine. Um, but what you are seeing is the heightened fear, anger, um, frustration with what's happening um, in general, whether it is us. There's a general anger of people feel that Israel is getting um, more support than the Palestinians, and the Palestinians um, feel they're, they're getting bombed and losing a lot of life. I mean, we're talking upwards of 3,000 people now killed, 10,000 or plus who have been injured in Gaza. Uh, here in the West Bank, by the way, there have been 67 people plus who have been killed. Whoop, watch out, there's an ambulance coming. Uh, and every now and then, you have tensions flare. Uh, this is what happens in this region, but this is different in that there is a full-scale official war that has been declared by Israel. And they may, going forward, go in uh, to Gaza on the ground. And there is a huge fear, huge fear, from people here that that is going to turn into an unbelievable massacre much worse than what has already occurred from the airstrikes. That's the situation here in Ramallah. There are very few actually comparatively protesters to compare to other places. Jordan has a huge number of protesters. We're seeing that in Lebanon as well. Uh, but, you know, this is this is how people are responding because they feel they can't do anything else but come out and, and decry um, what is happening to Palestinians in Gaza. Aaron.
All right, Sarah, thank you very much. And we're going to let Sarah go. As you can okay. see how tense that situation is uh, and, and what Sarah said, you know, that, that, that man coming up, you are not welcome here. Sarah, of course, moving immediately away, but it gives you a sense uh, of the passions and the tensions of what our ground crews are even experiencing on the ground right now. I want to go to Amman because I want to give Sarah a chance uh, to move. Sarah mentioned the mass protests in Amman. That's where Netta Bashir is, and she has been monitoring those over several days. Today, of course, the day mass turnout was promised. And Netta, please tell us what you are saying. Absolutely. Mass turnout was promised, and that is certainly what we saw a little earlier today. An enormous march following Friday prayers in downtown Amman. This march has uh, come to a bit of an end at this point, but we are expecting more protests later this evening, as we have done every night since the outset of this war began. Of course, here in Amman, there is a very strong feeling of solidarity with the Palestinian people, with people in Gaza. There is a very strong sense of outrage over the continued aerial bombardment of the Gaza Strip by Israel. And there's also anger, just as Sarah was experiencing there, over the coverage of this war. There is anger over the international response. Many here tell us that they feel that the plight of the Palestinian people, the plight of Palestinians inside Gaza, is not being addressed enough, is being ignored. And look, we've been speaking to protesters every night. Their message is the same. It is consistent. They want the world to pay attention to what is happening in Gaza, to call for a ceasefire, to bring an end to this war. Take a listen to what one protester we spoke to earlier today had to say. So we can let the world hear what Palestine is and how Israel is not actually our country. What is your message for the world? What do you want them to know? Why? To see that Palestine is one of the strongest countries in the world. What is your reaction to Israel's airstrikes, what you're seeing in Gaza? It's the most devastating things in the world, honestly, and I wish we all can do something about it and we can make the world hear about it. Now, of course. It's not just happening in Amman. As you heard from Sarah in the West Bank, we're seeing protests there. We are seeing protests in Lebanon, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt even, Iraq. This is happening across the region. And in fact, we're seeing that reflected in other parts of the world too. We're seeing huge protests in Europe, in the US. This is a cause that has really drawn out crowds to the street. Many people are deeply angry about what they are seeing in Gaza, not just the airstrikes, but the siege, the crippling humanitarian situation on the ground, there is a real sense of frustration and anger here. And we are anticipating that we will continue to see these protests so long as those airstrikes continue, so long as the siege on Gaza continues. And it's not just on the popular front. We are hearing this expressed by Arab leaders as well. King Abdullah of Jordan has been vocal in condemning the violence and calling for an end to the siege, as has President Abdel Fattah Sisi of Egypt. This has been reflected across the board. We are seeing that diplomatic movement, of course, particularly focused on the Rafah border crossing and attempts to get crucial aid into Gaza. But as the death toll continues to mount in the Gaza Strip, these protests are only going to intensify. And while we have seen that march earlier today uh, begin to dwindle now, we are nearing the afternoon, what we are anticipating this evening is another enormous show of solidarity with the Palestinians, another enormous show of protest. What we have seen for the last couple of nights is hundreds of people gathering towards the Israeli embassy here in Amman, a huge security presence, but that has not deterred the protesters. Aaron. All right, Netta, thank you very much. And Phil and Poppy, you know what, what Netta's seeing and, and expecting this evening, but also what we see uh, Sarah dealing with on the ground yeah. in Ramallah, obviously, you know, 
it, it, it is so important, right? These are pro-Palestinian protests, but there is also the perception of where the media stands, where American media stands. You are not welcome here. There is an anger and a resentment and a rage, and it is real. Mm -hmm. And it is important and it is a part of the story as well. Pro-Palestinian, anti-Israeli, anti-American. This is, this is often one big giant soup. And it's very hard to pull those strings apart as that moment with Sarah, I think, just illustrated yes. so well. It did. And Aaron, as we're talking to you, these are live pictures out of Ramallah in the West Bank. It is about 3.30 in the afternoon where you just saw our friend and correspondent Sarah Seidner uh, facing extreme opposition to just reporting on the ground there. Aaron, we just had Rula Jabral, who is a foreign policy analyst speaking, who said even though President Biden last night spoke again about U.S. support for a two-state solution, the Palestinians that she has spoken with after the president's address last night believe that they are empty words and they do not see action. I think you saw that playing out in the encounter Sarah had. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it is important, um, you know, as Rula said, there, there is just this groundswell. And, and what you, you see in Ramallah, we are going to see a lot more of it because we do know Israel's going to do something. It's going to be something notable. They say they're going to see the inside of Gaza. That's unacceptable on the Arab street. Just the other night, right, so I'm not even talking about now, but after that Gaza hospital bombing news, mm -hmm. Bill and Poppy, there were 80,000 people demonstrating on the streets in Adana, Turkey a place that most Americans have never even heard of. Adana, Turkey, there's a U.S. consulate there. There were 80,000 people reportedly outside of it in that consulate. My understanding was certainly was closed at that, at that time. Uh, I don't know if it's, if it's reopened, but had been closed because of that. And that, that is where, where we are right now, and it is an escalating cycle. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But we'll see what happens here in the evening, right? People have gotten out of mosque. That's what you're seeing in Ramallah. We will see what happens in Jordan and in Egypt, where, you know, President Sisi had today said there will be millions of Egyptians on the yeah. streets if they are allowed to go out and voice their opinion about people from Gaza, refugees from Gaza coming to Egypt, right? That specific angle on this could motivate millions of Egyptians. Mm -hmm. Protests in Egypt have been banned since we were all there in Tahrir Square. They have been banned by Sisi. He is allowing them back out in light of this. So we have all of these places to, to, to watch. And, and as I should say, the Middle East is a region where a lot of things happen at night. People stay up very late. It is a very nocturnal society in many ways. So when you see protests, they often continue well into the evening. And we'll see what happens tonight. Aaron, thank you very much. And such a critical point about Egypt and what we may see unfold there. Uh, we will get back to you, to Sarah, very quickly. We're keeping an eye on all of this. Again, live pictures out of Ramallah in the West Bank back in a moment. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. You're looking at images from just moments ago on the streets of Ramallah in the West Bank where it is in the middle of the afternoon. It is after mosque on a Friday. Mass protests. Our Sarah Seidner on the ground reporting there. We'll get to her shortly. Well, as those protests continue throughout the region, we're also seeing Israeli forces apparently on the brink of entering Gaza. A U.S. warship in the Red Sea has intercepted multiple missiles. U.S. military bases in Iraq and Syria have had to repel attacks. There is just a very dynamic and fluid situation right now in the region with us now with a look on what's going on. CNN Chief National Security Correspondent Jim Shudo. Uh, Jim, I want to start with our reporting about a, a potential green light for the massing forces of the IDF to actually enter Gaza. Uh, what does that tell you? 
Well, let's look at what we're already seeing down by the border. As you mentioned earlier, our Nick Robertson seeing these flares go up. Typically, you launch these flares to get better vision as your forces make plans for going in. And we're beginning to hear from Israeli politicians what the goal of this operation is. We've known for some time, and our teams have witnessed, all the forces, all the armor, armored personnel carriers, tanks, arrayed around Gaza, particularly this northern area. And now Israeli politicians are publicly describing what the goal of this operation is. To go in, they're saying it may very well be a long war, but then create these barriers here around Gaza, basically a no-man's land. They say it's going to be a free-fire zone so that no one inside Gaza, in particular Hamas fighters, Islamic Jihad, etc., can get even close to the border, but also then afterwards reserving the right and the ability for Israeli forces to go back in as necessary. Uh, one of the Israeli politicians mentioned how things work with the West Bank. That's how it works now with the West Bank. Israeli forces, uh, they, they go inside frequently. They carry out attacks frequently there against militants. They're basically setting up for the same thing when we look at what's happening in Gaza City now. And that, we should note, pretends a difficult operation inside Gaza. Jim, this and then the broader context of what is yeah. happening across the region, right? There has been activity involving U.S. warships yeah. uh, concerning Yemen. There's major concern about that. There has been active attacks by drones uh, mm -hmm. on, on U.S. bases in Iraq and in Syria. Can you put that all into context for us? And the morning after the president's Oval Office address. It, it, it gets to the threat here coming from two directions. So let's look at what happened yesterday. Yesterday, you had a U.S. destroyer here off the coast of Yemen, saw projectiles, missiles fired. At the time we first reported this, wasn't clear where they were going. Were they targeting the USS Kearney, the destroyer involved, or mm -hmm. something else? We learned throughout the day what they were actually targeting, it seems, the U.S. believes, was Israel, and the Kearney was able to shoot those missiles down before they got there. Why is that important? Because the great fear is that this expands into a multi-front conflict against Israel. Of course, you already had Hamas coming in from here. You have Hezbollah in the north. The idea of Iranian-backed Houthi rebels firing missiles from here, and then perhaps from Iran itself, then you begin to see the precarious geographical position that Israel is in. That's the concern. You've already seen what you might call pot shots taken at Israel, not a full-scale offensive, but it shows where the power is. And then you mentioned U.S. forces, Poppy. Yep. Here's the problem. You got U.S. forces distributed around the region. They are in Syria. They are in Iraq. You have ships here in the, Arabia, in the Red Sea, the Arabian Gulf. Also now two carrier groups here. They're there to defend Israel, provide all the resources they can without getting involved directly. Sad fact is, though, they're potential targets. And yesterday we saw uh, drones, rockets targeting U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria. Of course, concerns about U.S. ships down here and ships in the Eastern Med. One point I would make, Poppy and Phil, yeah. Hezbollah today, operating out of Lebanon, has thousands, thousands upon thousands of missiles, and those missiles are capable of hitting ships. They hit an Israeli yeah. ship during the 2006 war. The concern is, could they attempt to do the same against U.S. ships here? Jim, just to take a step back contextually, yeah. when you're talking to your sources at the Pentagon and the national security uh, establishment, do they feel like the kind of uptick we saw over the last 24 hours is, as you would frame it, pot shots just trying to harass, or do they feel like this is the start of an escalation? At a minimum, when I speak to folks at the Pentagon, it's a, we're here. 
kind of message. We can get to you, right? And, and that's a danger. And they can, right? They, 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 you have Iranian proxies in Iraq, Syria, uh, Yemen, Iran, Lebanon, uh, Gaza. They have a lot of opportunities to, to go after not just, of course, Israel, but U.S. forces. At this point, they don't see an escalation happening today, but it's possible. And that's the great concern here. And that's why you hear President Biden whenever he speaks. And you heard it in his first comments, right, in, in just the days after this attack. If you're thinking about coming in, the president's words were don't. And there's a lot of message sending with these forces that are going there. But listen, as, as you or the three of us know, having covered this, uh, this area, the, the, these tensions for some time, there are leaders in these nations who are willing to take risks, right? And, and would they take that risk? Remains to be seen. Yeah. Jim Shido, extremely helpful this morning. Thank you very Thanks. much for all of that. Well, clashes at the Lebanon-Israel border, that's north of Israel over the past week, have been raising fears about a wider regional war. Earlier today, Israel announced the mandatory evacuation of an Israeli city near Lebanon, then pulled that back. We'll speak to Lebanon's for- Minister of Foreign Affairs next. You're looking at live pictures in Ramallah and the West Bank. And on the other side of the screen, you're looking at pictures from a short while ago in Egypt. This is just part of what we're seeing throughout the region. In Ramallah, there have been protests. Our colleague Sarah Seidner was just in the middle of one. But to the right of your screen, you will see what is happening in Egypt, where political parties throughout the state for an issue that had often been banned, almost always banned by President el-Sisi, protests nationwide. They are happening. They are justified according to the Egyptian uh, state political parties and media, and they are very significant. We'll keep an eye on those as the morning goes on. Also this morning, the Israeli military tells CNN they have shot three militants on the border of Lebanon and are searching for another who tried to infiltrate the country. Tensions have been rising along the northern border of Israel for days as Israel trades missile fire with Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed militant group based in Lebanon. And right now, Israel is also calling for the voluntary evacuation of a town near the border that is home to some 23,000 people. There is growing concern Hezbollah could open a second front against Israel in this war if Israel launches that ground incursion that is expected into Gaza, which is something a senior advisor to Benjamin Netanyahu said this morning Israel is ready for. And we're building up our forces and we're, we're ready to move. And if you've interviewed any of those soldiers on the front, you know there's a determination to go and to do what needs to be done. Joining me now is Lebanon's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Abdullah Buhabib. He is, all, he is also the former Lebanese ambassador to the United States. And Mr., uh, Mr. Minister of Foreign Affairs, I appreciate your time this morning. Let me begin with the question of what your government's response is this morning to this cross-border fire, cross fire coming from Hezbollah into Israel. I think even more importantly, what, if anything, is your government doing to rein in Hezbollah? Well... First, we have been very afraid and very worried that the war could spread to Lebanon. This is the last thing we want. We've had wars. It's enough for us. And we're trying to have peace now in, North, in uh, southern Lebanon. The issue is that there are a lot of exchanges, bad exchanges between the groups in Lebanon and, uh, and, and Israel. Uh, both accused the other of starting it. What we are asking is that for Israel to uh, call for a ceasefire for 48 hours. If they do that, 
then we'll know exactly who's starting what. So really, we don't want war. We, the government does not want war. We are dialoguing with the various groups, but it is uncontrollable because it depends all on what happened in Gaza. Gaza is a very important issue to a lot of people in the region, and not only in Lebanon, but also in Syria and Jordan and Iraq, and of course in Palestine. So what happened in Gaza, if there is excessive uh, invasion of Gaza, it really is out of control. Foreign Minister, and are you in touch? we are asking... Mr. Foreign Minister, are you in touch? Are you speaking with, actively speaking with Hezbollah militants, trying to uh, enact that deterrence that you're talking about right now, advocating for that deterrence? No, we are talking with them all the time. And we're talking with the Iranians and we're talking with the Syrians, everybody. We are trying to stop the damage, but sometimes things get out of control, like what happened uh, in southern Did we lose the connection? So There we go. Go ahead. That's why we're asking for a ceasefire. Sorry. That's why we're asking ceasefire. That's why we're talking to the various parties. Uh, most people here, you know, there is no war yet. Yes, there is skirmishes, but there is no war yet. And it all depends on the limitation or well, how, how far and how long would be the war yeah. in Gaza. Well, look, this is what the, just this morning, uh, one of the spokespeople, Colonel, Colonel Lerner for the IDF, said that basically they will hold your government uh, responsible for any attack from Hezbollah. I just want you to listen to this and I want to give you a chance to respond. Here it is. The government of Lebanon, anything that happens from their sovereign territory, they need to, they are responsible for and, and, and they will be held accountable for. This is a sovereign state. It has control over its borders. They have the responsibility to make sure that terrorists like Hezbollah, a terrorist army, uh, does not launch attacks against Israel. They, they put, Mr. Foreign Minister, that responsibility on on you. I know they said more than that. They said they will uh, put uh, return Lebanon to the Stone Age and so on. You know, if they stop, you know, nobody is talking in Lebanon. Even Hezbollah is not saying anything in Lebanon. You know, the, the leader of Hezbollah did not make a statement yet. If they stop talking, these are they are inciting the situation. They are making it worse by their talk. So it's better for them to really call for a ceasefire. So because they are a country, the others are militias. So let's, you know, let's call for a ceasefire and see what happens instead of threatening. No, there is no way to threaten now because, because the damage would be worse for them as much as for us. You know, it would be Lebanon. That's what we are afraid of, would be damaged, would be destructed. But their country is not going to be safe because all of these resistance forces have a lot of weapons and they're going to use them. Look, Mr. Foreign Minister, you, you yes. warned just several months ago uh, that given the, the breakdown of the government in Lebanon, it, it does not have a president right now, that if there were a breakdown further, that it could be worse in the situation, in your words, in the, than that between Israel and the Palestinians right now. I have to ask you, there are many people that are looking at your government right now, criticizing it for ultimately having no say over whether your country is at peace or, or is at war. Uh, and 
and that this is essentially a call that a paramilitary group, an unelected body, will, will ultimately make. And I wonder what you say to that criticism. I, I say that not only Lebanon, every country in the region, if the situation gets worse in Gaza, every country in the region is not going to have much say. Every government in the region is not going to have much say of what happens in the street or on the borders with Israel. It's not an easy situation, and the Israelis should understand that. The governments of this region, including that of Lebanon, despite the fact we don't have a president, we do not want war. We don't want to see destruction in our countries. But if things get out of hand, God knows what would happen. Not for us only, mm -hmm. not for the countries of the region, also for Israel as well. So it is better to control it in Gaza because the people are interrelated here politically and even blood-wise. So we, we cannot hold them from doing some revenge if, if really the situation in Gaza is going to yeah. be worse than what it is now. Meaning you cannot hold back Hezbollah, that's what you're saying? Now we are dialoguing. They don't want war. Okay. Uh, we, they do not want a war. But, I mean, you cannot control it. It all depends, wow. again, on what happens in Gaza. Mr. on the invasion of Israel to Gaza. Mr. Foreign Minister uh, of Affairs, Abdullah Buhabib, I really appreciate your time in speaking with CNN this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much this afternoon. This afternoon for you, that's right. Thank you. Yes, thank you. We've been showing you live images of ongoing protests in the, waste, in the West Bank. We're going to continue to discuss the global impact. There's live images right there of the war unfolding right now between Israel and Hamas as the White House aims to deter wider escalation. Stay with us. Welcome back. This has been a very fast-moving week in Israel's war against Hamas. It started with Secretary of State Antony Blinken crisscrossing the Middle East. There was the hospital explosion in Gaza and the subsequent fallout it then quickly took over the headlines midweek. That was followed by President Biden's historic trip to Israel, where he showed full-throated support for the Israeli war effort. And of course, the canceled meeting in Amman, Jordan, that was supposed to occur. Now, pro-Palestinian protesters uh, have the protests have flared up across the region, or are leading into what could be a very eventful and consequential weekend. Joining us now is CNN host Fried Zakaria. Um, I actually want to start where Poppy left off uh, with the foreign minister. The idea of leaders not having control, him, him saying, I can't control what the street does. Um, in Lebanon, it's a little bit different in terms of Hezbollah's power versus the government's power. But what did you take away from that? I think it shows you the limits of Bibi Netanyahu's strategy for the last really 15 years. He's been prime minister on and off for most of that time, which has been completely ignore the Palestinian issue provide no path for Palestinian political rights, political settlement of some kind, and try to make peace with the Arabs. Uh, on the theory that particularly the Gulf Arabs don't really care about the Palestinians, they mouth the rhetoric, but they really don't care. And what you saw with that very good interview that Bobby did was that there are limits to that strategy, because even if they don't care, they they, it is true that it is this great popular cause among the people of the Arab world. Um, and particularly if they feel there is no political path for the Palestinians, uh, you know, that these people are living in miserable conditions, it makes them much more prone to support 
or anything. And now, to be absolutely clear, none of that condones the brutal terror attack of Hamas. But there is a political context, particularly to the Arab support. So these governments are all calculating, you know, how, how much do we give in? And remember, many of these governments are not democracies. So this is a way of letting out steam for popular views, anguish, anger. You made a really interesting argument on your show last week and in your column, and I'm just going to read the, the crux of it, um, about the strategic prize. And you said the establishment of normal relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia would be the severest setback for Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran. Not a military setback. You were saying go forward with what everyone is essentially saying now is dead in the water. So if you think about it, what is Hamas reacting to? Hamas is reacting to the idea that Israel and the moderate Arab states are going to, you know, ally, have normal relations, have economic and technological exchanges, that there's going to be a kind of world of peace and prosperity. And for a Hamas, a terror organization, this is terrible, right? So they, they want to burn the house down. The best riposte to that would be continue to build that world of peace and prosperity. But in order to do it, you have to solve, or at least be on a path to solving the Palestinian issue. The, you know, the Netanyahu's approach fundamentally seems to assume that there, there is no issue, but there are five and a half million Palestinians who live between the West Bank and Gaza, and they do not really have political rights. And you can't just pretend that problem doesn't exist. If you can find a way to provide some political path there, restart relations, you know, notice none of the countries that have signed the Abraham Accords with, with Israel are breaking off ties yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can tell all these guys want to have relations with Israel. They understand that that's, that's a bright future for them. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, it's a win-win. But you got to give them some path so that they don't seem as though they're trampling on Palestinian rights. Yeah. That lack of path, I think, gets to a question we've been asking all week, which is if Israel goes in, if they do what they say they plan to do to Hamas, both the military and political organization, what next? If you look at the West Bank and you look at how Abbas leads and his respect, not just with Israel, but also with his own people, we've seen protesters calling for his ouster. The mm -hmm. Palestinian Authority is uh, certainly not the strongest of governing institutions. What's next in Gaza? What's next in the West Bank? You're absolutely right. And add to that complexity, there have been a lot of settlers who've been going around and shooting Palestinians. I mean, I can't remember the numbers, but it's, you know, dozens have died in the last six months. Uh, a bunch have died in the last few days. And so all that adds to this complexity. And, you know, it's important to remember Abbas is largely unpopular because he's feckless, corrupt, but also because it's seen that he has promised we'll recognize Israel, we will, you know, we will work with them. And he's gotten from the Palestinian point of view, nothing for it. You know, so that's the problem here, which is that the you, you, you have delegitimized and undermined the one Palestinian partner you had who recognized you, who had renounced terror, was trying to work with you. And as people in Israel have reported, this was part of a strategy that Netanyahu had of building up Hamas to undermine uh, the, the Palestinian Authority right. so that he could say, hey, there's no path. There's no peaceful path. We just have to kind of keep going. It, it, you know, it's it, it, what it makes you realize is that this is so fraught with complexity that the Israelis should really spend a lot of time thinking about the day after. You ask what happens. So let's assume everything goes well in this war. Um, they take Gaza City. They take Gaza. Then what? Do they want to reoccupy Gaza? If they leave, 
Hamas will come back. If they stay, Hamas will launch terror attacks and an insurgency. We know that because they were in Gaza for 20, for, you know, decades. And that's exactly what happened. That's why they left. What's the other path then, Fareed? I think that in general with, with terror, you know, the terrorists are trying to provoke an overreaction. They're trying. That's what 9-11, you know, that's what, that's the goal to produce a massive overreaction that then produces civilian casualties and people start siding with uh, the, the terrorists. Be strategic, go in targeted. If you're trying to, you know, the Israelis used to have a rule many, many years ago that, that the goal that they would, they would bide that time and they would take out every terrorist who planned and executed this. Maybe that's several hundred people. Go after each single one, be narrow, be strategic. Imagine if we had done that after 9-11, instead of invading two countries, building up, you know, a massive uh, bureaucracy and spending what some estimate is $8 trillion. Have we become more secure because of it? We heard the president with that warning last night. Again, learn from our mistakes after 9-11. Freed, thank you. So look forward to the show this weekend. Appreciate it. Just moments ago, the attorney for Kenneth Chesbrough just arrived at an Atlanta area court. Chesbrough is accused of being the architect of the fake elector scheme on, and was indicted on seven criminal charges. And CNN just learned he was offered a plea deal, jury selection, and that trial is expected to begin today. CNN News Central continues right now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.